Yeah, recording on audio now? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So what's the future in terms of like um, what are the different types of recycling that we should have here? Look, we want to stick with the three bin model. We don't want to keep on adding bins because bins continue to add um, collection space storage issues, particularly with units and apartments, which are already a nightmare if you've lived in a unit, as I have in recent years, uh, and you've got three bins. There's no room for anything else. Victoria are adding a fourth glass bin. That is completely outrageous. Uh, we want to get better at sorting. We want better technologies. So, And we want to look at the container deposit scheme potentially expanding that onto other products like wine bottles. Now, we don't have an official policy on that, but uh, there's movement to look at that. In Tell a me we're going to get more for the wine bottles if we, we take get, them to... We get nothing at the moment. Wow. There's no 10 cents on wine bottles. So that's something we were looking at. But you've got to do that very carefully, bringing the wine industry with you. The reason it was never on wine bottles was that wine bottles weren't litter. The container deposit scheme was set up in South Australia in the late 1970s. First in Australia, Victoria will catch up next year, 45 years later. They don't have one at all. But it was a litter reduction scheme. It's the reason South Australia is the cleanest state in the nation. Today it's not about litter because we don't tend to litter nearly as much culturally. What it's about is what they call the circular economy, making sure a wine bottle becomes a wine bottle, becomes a wine bottle, becomes a wine bottle. If you put a wine bottle into the yellow bin, which is quite appropriate at the moment, uh, and it breaks, it becomes usually road base. So it goes into building roads. That's not the circular economy. That's one use replacing another, and it's being reused once we're not interested in that in the future. We want true circularity. So how do you facilitate that? Because wouldn't you have to have more organisation methods to have different products actually having that kind of life cycle? So let's look at wine bottles, for instance. Uh, everyone's got wine bottles. Everyone loves the idea of this, apart from potentially the wine industry, because the um, everyone thinks they drink lots of wine and will be rich if you get 10 cents per wine bottle back. Uh, So, you know, there's that incentive there. But people, uh, let's look at wine bottles. Wine bottles um, can be quite easily recycled if they had 10 cents on them and they went to the depot rather than into the recycle bin. So you take them to the depot, uh, the glass is sorted at depot. It goes, in the case of South Australia, it would probably end up at a massive shed up... um, just out of Gawler uh, at, a, at a site, a private company called Aurora. Currently, Aurora produced 2 million glass bottles a day. Oh, my God. Uh, people huge. thought I was going to say a week or a month, a day. It is the biggest um, glass manufacturing facility, I think, in Australia. Don't quote me on that, but I think it is. Because, of course, South Australia produces 60% of the nation's wine. Uh, and because of that, we have a much greater need for wine bottles and we have a much greater need for recycling. Uh, so uh, recycled, there's a huge hunger for recycled glass content, a huge customer demand as uh, customers are demanding more sustainability in, in industry, in the wine industry. But you've got to take the wine industry and the journey. The wine industry is having a very difficult time. Tariffs in China, uh, some challenges in the UK with uh, alcohol taxes that are coming in, um, labour shortages, cost of wages going up. Mm. The last thing you want to whack them with is the administration around this because it's quite uh, administratively burdensome. But if we work hand-in-hand with the wine industry over several years, we can get 10 cents on those bottles. But like all of these things, it's a big process. It would have to be done in a bipartisan way. Of course, I'm no longer the environment minister. I'm the shadow environment minister. Uh, But I would certainly 
support the current government to move in that direction. Are you pretty active in your environmental minister role as the shadow? Yeah, absolutely. So when you become the leader, you get to pick the portfolios. That's my <laughs> job. That's my luxury. So I gave the uh, shadow environment portfolio to the person that I thought would be most passionate about it in this state, and that was me. Uh, because I loved being the environment minister in South Australia, I believe we transformed the portfolio, got so much done mm. for our parks, for wildlife, for beaches, for single-use plastic uh, pollution reduction. We did so much, and I wanted to maintain that momentum. I stood for politics to become the environment minister. Uh, I achieved that and never set out to be the opposition leader or the premier, but I'm on a new trajectory now. Will, you had a question? Well, that kind of that leads into the to the next part of the question is... It, you know, um, how much of it is a surprise to you now that you're in this position of being the opposition leader? It's a huge surprise. I'm a boy from Hallett Cove. Uh, I, my parents moved to South Australia 19 years ago when I was in high school to give their three boys greater opportunity in life. Never for one minute did they think that that greater opportunity would see one of their three boys become the state's opposition leader uh, and potentially the premier in the future because I'm running to win uh, in 2026. I am, uh, I'm one election away from being the state's premier. I don't know if I'll get there, uh, but I am running to win. I hope I get there. I hope the South Australian people see the vision and passion I have for this state. Uh, but it is a big surprise on a couple of levels. I didn't expect we'd necessarily lose the election. Mm. You know, the, the election loss, uh, I thought, well, I thought it would be closer than it was. I thought there was a chance we could lose, but we lost heavily and badly yeah. and, and horrendously. Uh, we, we had a terrible campaign, a shameful campaign, an embarrassing campaign. Many people should be um, looking very carefully at that and will look very carefully at that, why that happened, me included. But uh, I woke up the day after the election and realised, you know, there was an opportunity to become the leader, that if I put my hand up, I'd certainly be the favourite to take that position, just the way that the dominoes had fallen on election night. However, uh, I took several weeks to make that decision, talking to friends and family, what I wanted. You know, I tossed up, do I just stay as a backbench MP and get better at my surfing down at Middleton, or do I, uh, <laughs> and that went through my head, let me tell you, or do I th throw everything at it, become the leader of the party? As I said, if I put my hand up, I was 95% sure I would get the endorsement of my colleagues, but the decision I had to make was whether to put my hand up or not and, um, and put myself forward as the alternative premier of the state of South Australia. Love it. Amazing. Love it. You're so good at talking now. <laughs> yeah, you, you oh, I don't know. Oh no, you've got me. You've got a, you've got so much flow about it. It's great. Yeah, well done. Thank you. You were good before, but like you just you know you definitely reached another level in terms of your, like just like storytelling. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's all part of it. You've got to be able to bring people on a journey. And if I look back tw eight years ago. If you go back eight years, I had just entered Parliament, just been sworn in as a, a backbench MP, and I thought I'm, I was out of my depth then. You know, I, I have, I think many people in leadership have what they call imposter syndrome, mm. which is the idea of, um, or, or the feeling that how did I get here? I'm not worthy of this. I can't do this. And you talk, you, I listen to podcasts of people in senior international leadership positions. You know, some of the most powerful people in the world have that. And I certainly do. I think, how did, did I end up as the leader of the opposition? Especially because it wasn't planned. Some people, 
and I'd put Premier Malinaskis in this camp, mm. have set out on a journey to become the Premier of South Australia. For a long time. For a long time. And have seen it as their destiny. Um, Now, I'm not saying Peter Malinaskis sees it necessarily as his his destiny, and he's worked exceptionally hard to get there. There's no doubt about that. But uh, but I didn't. I was extremely satisfied as the States Minister for Environment and Water for four years. And look, I, I hoped to... I'll be very honest, and I've been reasonably public about this. I hope to become the state treasurer had we won, uh, and I had had conversations with Stephen Marshall about that. Why do you want to be that? Because um, the person with the money can affect real change, and there were particular mm. things that I thought I could apply money towards, including the natural environment in the state, an area often starved from money. We did very well, historically well, over four years, but I felt we could take that to the next level. Thought we could apply a lot more money to innovation and and skills in this state to really transform the state uh, and further transform it from the four years of uh, transformation that we saw under Stephen Marshall. So that's why I wanted to be the the treasurer. I always think... uh, Put a Scotsman in charge of your money; they'll do well. Yeah, yeah. nice and frugal. I feel you. That's exactly. Yeah, that's that's it. Hamish, the yeah. oh, yeah, fellow man. Scotsman. Oh, <laughs> my dad. He's been starting to realise just how frugal I am, and he just shakes his head at me and goes, "How? That, that's my son. <laughs> that's my son. No, 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 he's frugal, but I'm like beating him at being it. It's funny because um, I work with my dad now, so it's cool. And um, all right, so what is your actual like? journey of your experience of yourself like you've come from a whole another country and now you're a leader in this country like what is that like for you it's 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 unbelievable look i my parents brought me here in at the end of 2002 just wound up high school in scotland um Mum and Dad came out a few months before. I remember so clearly the day I landed in Adelaide Airport, the 30th of November 2002, which is St Andrew's Day, in fact, the the National Day of Scotland. But uh, I landed here, Adelaide Airport. I remember the blue sky. I remember the drive from the airport to Hallett Cove and uh, and seeing where we were going to live. The house wasn't ready. Mum and Dad built a house there uh, back when one of the subdivisions at Hallett Cove was opening up. And I, I can remember so clearly driving into that street uh, at the end of each election campaign. I door knock that street. So my three election campaigns, I've gone and door knocked that street. I've got photographs of me in that street, 2014, 2018, 2022. Uh, and that this place became home. But it wasn't easy. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't excited about moving to Australia by any means. That was my mom and dad's dream. Like so many migrants, it is the, their parents drive them and, uh, and and make that happen. I came with mum and dad. I didn't want it. Uh, and I, I pushed back big time. I was a nightmare mm. for, for a while, uh, a, a teenage nightmare. But I um, I eventually knuckled down and thought, now nah, I'm going to make a, make a shot of life here. And I did. And that then triggered a journey of, Involvement in community, surf lifesaving, environmental work, uh, then on to council, uh, deputy mayor of Marion, uh, local MP, shadow minister, minister, and now leader of the opposition. I've condensed 18 years into minutes, but it is very far removed from the the um, the the wet but green landscape that I grew up in on the southwest coast of Scotland. I'm still very connected to that. Which, where, what's your community called? So 
the region, the ancient region, because Scotland has its shires and regions and districts and and things like that. The age, the ancient district is the district of Galloway, mm-hmm. uh, so it is hill country, uh, rugged hills, forests, sloping down to fertile plains by the sea. Uh, so the areas around the sea, highly fertile dairy and arable farming country, then into forested country and up into into mountains. So it's in the south, south part of Scotland. And in fact, the closest city was not in Scotland. So people have always heard of Glasgow and Edinburgh. Our closest city in Scotland was Glasgow. But in fact, the closest city uh, was Belfast in Northern Ireland. And that's where we would go and do our shopping. We'd get in the go. ferry. It was about 30, 35 kilometers away. Yeah. Yeah, and it, how is, where is that in relation to Loch Fine? Because that's where my family Loch Fine. resides. Yeah, I'd have to Google Loch okay. Fine. Don't worry about that. Uh, that's embarrassing. But <laughs> Loch Fine sounds small to me. Yeah, um, I think it is. Uh, look, it's probably most of the lochs are up in the north. Well, it's definitely on the west coast. West, the northwest. It, it's like a, it's a bit under, like a few hours under Isle of Skye. Yeah, okay. So it would be between Glasgow and the Highlands. And uh, I'm we're south of Glasgow. Yeah, we okay. were about two, two and a bit hours south of Glasgow. Yeah, fair enough. All right, in terms, because I, I love the conversation about how things recycled in different supply chains. Like, I really geek out in it. Um, in terms <laughs> of, like, the difference between cardboard, how okay. random, like random, how random. how good is cardboard swivel, swivel. as being a like recycled material? Is it the kind of just breaks down and then made into cardboard again? Okay, like? so cardboard is interesting because if you you can take uh, you can put cardboard into your green bin as long as it's not got staples and and and, and tape, tape on and it and that. things like that. And the green bin recipients actually quite like cardboard going in there because it helps some of their processes. So there's a tip. For um, young players, you can put cardboard in your green bin, and also importantly, pizza boxes as well, which should go in your green bin because even, oh, because almost have pizza, almost all, almost always in your green bin with pizza boxes. Yep, almost always. So there, there's another recycling well, the, tip. The pizza can go in there tonight, right? If yep. you've yeah. got leftover pizza and you don't want to eat it into the green bin, because food can go, any food can go in the green bin, but your pizza boxes will almost certainly be contaminated with oils and uh, the, the grease of pizza, so they just, no-brainer, straight into the green bin. Cardboard's very easy to recycle, uh, so it's the sort of thing that can circulate round and round and round again, either via the composting process if it is uh, very clean, uh, but also just through the the paper pulping process. Yeah, bet. Okay, so Adelaide's well, just quickly uh, Adelaide's um, city city skyline and whatnot. What are your thoughts of what the future would that be like? Because I've seen on the east side there's been more developments with like apartment buildings and stuff like that, which is obviously a new thing. And then we also have Glenelg that has the sky rises, centre of the city, but we've also seen it on um, the west side starting to come up, but not heaps. Like how do you think that will... I love seeing Adelaide grow. So I'm from down south. I'm a boy from the south. Uh, I often think of driving down South Road at O'Halloran Hill. You come through Glenthorne National Park and you can see the city in the distance. And that city is dramatically changing, especially the southern view because it's widening. Because from the south, you can see both the east and the west mm. start to expand. But particularly east, you're looking at, uh, I think it's the Realm and the there's another... Um, 
hotel slash apartment block there as well. And those are two of the highest buildings in the CBD. So that new one in the, the furthest east area, I think it's on from, it's either on from or Pulteney. Yeah, it's from. From, that is, that's now the tallest building in Adelaide. Adelaidean, right? That that one? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, what it's called. yeah, it's yeah. Like the Adelaide. But it's yeah. a big. That's a big change to the skyline. We're seeing investment. There's a range of different buildings proposed. There's a great building going in on King William Street. It's not particularly tall, but it's got huge bulk. I think it might actually be the bulkiest and and possibly the largest office building in terms of floor space. Oh, is that the on one King Williams right Street. next to Rundle Mall? Yeah, it used to be the city. Um, City Central Arcade, um, what, no, the Southern Cross Arcade, City Central's still there on Rundle Mall between Rundle and Grenfell. So, uh, so the Southern Cross Arcade fronted King William Street and it's being built there between there and James Place. That's a new building going in. And actually, listeners, if you're down on King William Street, look at that building site because the facade of an old building is there. That was one of the things I did when I was heritage minister, which came with the environment portfolio. I actually saved that facade and gave it... Um, the Slither. Yeah, so that's the Sands and Google building Regil. facade. And the developer wasn't stoked when I made that decision, but they are now encapsulating part of Adelaide's heritage in the building. That'll be really exciting to see when it's done. But So that's a new building there. Now look, I'm in favour of seeing... I, I'm, I'm someone who thinks this city can grow as long as growth is planned and, and there's appropriate infrastructure, appropriate greening as well, which I'm passionate about, urban greening. Uh, but I think a lot more people can and should live in our CBD, and I'm talking thousands more, if not tens of thousands more. I think Adelaide's CBD can absorb far more people, contribute to the vibrancy of the city, um, spending through the city in terms of people using cafes and restaurants and uh, everything from retirement accommodations to student accommodation to everything in between. Our CBD can take a lot more people. I think there's more prospects of, of areas around Glenelg, around Marion. Um, I think there's, uh, there's, there's lots of opportunity for this city to grow. Yeah, because we had about 30% commercial vacancy before COVID hit. I mean, just on a, re- on a commercial front, we can fit more people. We certainly can. Some A lot of our commercial vacancy, though, is older stock, mm-hmm. and businesses are and, and, and workers are increasingly demanding of their bosses a higher quality office fit-out and experience, more modern, more environmentally friendly. So a lot of the office vacancy rate in Adelaide is old stock. Yeah, it's which, like C&D. Which may never uh, get filled again. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, that will come down to developing the next generation of buildings, right? Yeah, that's exactly it, and making sure things like green walls, green roofs, you've got real innovation uh, in the type of building and your building design. I think if pro- if property developers don't embrace that sort of stuff, people won't come back into those sort of buildings. Mm, yeah, fair point, fair point. Will, did you have a question before? Uh, yeah, about um, sustainability and climate change. So, obviously, last time we talked to you, we crowned you the uh, environmental champion Adelaide set. I've still got that. You remember that? I've yeah. still, still got that trophy. <laughs> I moved house a few months ago, and I uh, it was on top of the microwave. Now it's uh, sitting in my spare desk in the garage. So. Oh, we've been relegated. I love that. <laughs> we've been love relegated it. to the show. No, but it hasn't gone in the bin. <laughs> oh, I would have felt bad putting it in the bin. What's happening with that building? So, I remember it was... It was a staged situation. What is the ALP going to do? Are they going to continue it on? So the single-use plastic bill? Mm. Yeah, you're exactly right. So the, the sort of headline-grabbing stuff, 
became law on the 1st of March 2021. That's when we got rid of plastic straws, drinks, stirrers and plastic cutlery. And that got law first place in Australia to do it. But of course, as you mentioned, we'd, we'd uh, built in a range of trenches of that ban and also very easy capacity so that things without big legal changes, you could actually bring in other items to quite easily ban through the process of regulation, which is a much easier type of legislation. Cool. What was it like working with George? George. Yeah, George. George was my social media guy back when I was uh, the last year or so of my time as um, as environment minister. George did a great job. He, uh, he, there wasn't, when I went into opposition, you've got a lot less resources in opposition. So you've got to really curtail your, your operation. And George. You didn't make the cut. <laughs> no, don't, don't say that about poor, poor, poor old George. Cut, cut that one in. Cut that. You'll have to cut that. George, George did a great job and I, I miss him, but we, we had to go down to a much tighter workforce when, um, when you go into opposition you don't have the resources and the capacity that come with being a government minister. Although the leader of the opposition gets a bit more than some of the colleague, the, his, his or her colleagues, of course. What, what would you say for his future employers? What do, you, what do you reckon? Employ him. Employ him. There we go. George was really creative, always trying to do things differently and uh, uh, push the boundaries. I didn't expect to get questions tonight about George, though. Ah, look, we keep How's it How's George doing? I haven't heard from him He's lately. good, man. Yeah? He's good. Yeah, he's killing I saw it. a um, photo shoot with him and his girlfriend on Instagram today. Oh, dude, you're about to see some wild photos from that shit. He bought a sword. Okay. He bought a sword because he's going through this, like, you know how he... A sword yeah. He always has new things. We all go through a sword The fat of the month. The fat yeah, of the he's month. new fat of the month. He loves swords right now. Okay. He's like, to be a man, you must have a sword. Okay. Well, and he's that's like, an interesting uh, thing to subscribe to. Stay safe, George. <laughs> Quick uh, intermission. Don't go on the bus with well, it. Or run Rundle Mall. Quick <laughs> intermission, guys, but how the keys to the car. Oh, the keys of the car. Yep. Oh, they're on my hip. Because we have we have pizza coming. We got pizza coming. That's exciting. Oh, dude, why do you need the car though? Because you locked the front Everything door. Everything was locked. Wait, ah, oh, the person locked it. Yeah. That wasn't me. That was yep. somebody else that was here. It's pretty good that people like lock this place up for us. Like, I love it. I actually yep. like it. Oh, by the way, so yeah, we're uncut. That's the difference here. Is we're completely uncut. We have the ability to do it how we want. So we just take bits, put it on social media, and the whole cut, we just put it on so people can listen to a candid, real conversation. Love it. I'm yeah. waiting for the camera to come back because then I'll start getting more political. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of like how it has been adjusting to being the guy that's supposed to know everything about everything in South Australia, what's that been like? That's right. hard. That's hard. So when you're Minister for Environment, deep knowledge, single-use plastic, climate change, national parks, rangers, coasts, plants, animals, animal welfare, all of that stuff, but a very deep knowledge. Uh, and water, of course, River Murray and, and those sorts of things. But then, and I've been in Cabinet for four years, so you're hearing from the Transport Minister, the Health Minister, the Child Protection Minister, the Sports Minister, etc., the Treasurer. You're hearing from these people. And I've been in various Cabinet committees where you are exposed to their thinking and their ideas and what they are advancing. But suddenly, as Opposition Leader, your knowledge goes from really deep 
to really broad mm-hmm. and, and probably inevitably shallower. So I'm still the, the shadow environment minister, so I've kept the, the deep knowledge of the environment because that's, as I said earlier, a passion of mine. But now I've got to go across everything. I've got to... Uh, th- we've had a very difficult piece of legislation presented to state parliament in the past week on return to work, uh, which is uh, the work cover insurance scheme that's uh, state administered. Hard, hard intellectually, hard work, hard yeah, to get that right balance it? between the rights of vulnerable workers and making sure they're protected and mm. not putting a, a, an something that's too burdensome on business that they can't pay their levies and they go bankrupt. So hard stuff. And I knew nothing about work cover apart from the basics before this past week. You've got to quickly get your head around it. And there's so many things like that. How do you do that? You just got to. I've got a team of of advisors around me. Um, I read lots. I listen. I've got shadow ministers, of course. Their job is to get the deep knowledge and then pass that knowledge to me. So it's very tricky. It's but how very do you make sure stuff. it's like a right decision that you're making? Because they obviously come to you to go, "Hey, is it kind of like is it work as well, a business? Often, like, is it cool if I do this? Like, yeah, this is what look, I think." Look, this At is what I reckon. Stage, go, yeah, that sounds good. I'm 50 days into the leadership, 55 days, something like that. It is the early days. But at this stage, having just lost government, our job is actually to sit back, work out what the Liberal Party is all about, uh, formulate over time policy information, policy ideas, all that sort of stuff. We're not out there with big ideas for the future of the state now. We are rebuilding, refocusing. Or, examining our values, listening to South Australians, working out what we want. So there's lots of engagement, lots of regional trips, and there will be for a couple of years. Mm. And bit by bit, uh, through listening to experts, academics, people with real-life experience, people on the ground all across our state, we will bit by bit, with my shadow ministers taking the lead for their particular portfolios, come up with an alternative, detailed, and hopefully very exciting vision for our state. Yeah, that's cool. So you figure out like what it is that is important at this time in South Australia's history to focus on. Yes, uh, definitely. And there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to focus on. And there is a lot. There's a lot of we're at a crossroads in so many ways. Now, I'm not trashing the legacy of the Liberal government. I think history will be kind to Stephen Marshall and his uh, period as the leader of this state and and the work that he and his cabinet did. Uh, but at the so I've got to build on the successes of our government. Things like Lot 14, that incredible innovation uh, precinct on North Terrace where you've got the, the National Space Agency, you've got uh, cyber security and, and cyber advancement at the very heart of the work there. You've got some of the most innovative startups in the nation. So we've got to build on that. We've got to build on the success I had with... Um, uh, with the environmental portfolio and the opening up of reservoirs and the growth of tourism, particularly regional tourism. We've got to build on things, but we've also got to reflect on what went wrong, what was difficult uh, as, a, um, as, as a government, what people didn't like, what people didn't want. And we've got to build up that alternative vision. It's a huge job. We've got four years to do it, but quite quickly we need to start talking about the, our ambition for the state, the direction we want the state to head in, and where to from here. Yeah, fair enough. That is a big thing. Will? Do you think the Liberals are having a little bit of an existential crisis at the moment after the two election losses? Look, you could say that, but 
I don't think so. I think there's certainly a number of crossroads here. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're a centre-right party. Uh, Labour are centre-left party. We're a centre-right party. I'm not going to lurch around from right to left wing uh, from an ideological sense. My job's to modernise the party, uh, grow its membership, grow its level of connection with communities. And right across the state, as I, as I mentioned, every corner of this state ought to be able to feel represented by their Liberal Party, their alternative government, and we go from there. So what do you, what broad, do you think broad church is what you're saying? Absolutely. We're going to be so centre-right. We're a centre-right party. There's no doubt about that. We're not going to disappear from that. If you don't want a centre-right party, you vote for Labour or the Greens. If you want a centre-right party, you vote for us. But we're sensible centre. We're middle of the road in many ways. Uh, but we, we talk a lot about common sense, supporting small business, providing opportunities for the individual and or communities to get ahead, uh, a hand up rather than a handout. Uh, and those are the sort of things that, you know, I, I, I threw out a lot of slogans there in some ways. We need to develop what that actually means in reality. Yep. And we're not going to do it overnight because that's not my job. My job is to reform, renew, reinvigorate this party and bit by bit build it into an alternative government for the state given that it has just been monumentally kicked to the curb by the South Australian people, we have to look at every aspect of how we do business. How, how's that playing out for you, you know, um, topically right now? Obviously, you've got the by-election in Bragg. You have wanted to get the uh, COP to Adelaide. You've written to Albanese. And obviously, you've been pretty critical of the budget for the ALP. So how does that... Um, how do those you know values and things been playing out for you in the first 55 or so days so 55 days very very early but look i have been confronted with a whole range of different challenges and immense opportunities for the party so my leadership is a complete generational reset line in the sand the dynasties of bygone era are out the door and let me tell you i am quite happy about that and i've always said that we need to move beyond factional infighting, crap that happened before I was even born. I just have got no interest in it. I've got no interest in the old grudges. Take them with you. This is a party for all South Australians. It's been led by a bloke who wasn't born here. It's been led by a bloke from the southern suburbs. And it's been led by someone who for four years led the most progressive environmental agenda in this nation. So that's some of the things you'll get from me. You'll get a party that is focused on the suburbs and regional towns. It won't be run by elites. It won't be run by big business. You'll get a party that listens to small and family business, which are the backbone of this nation. A bit of a cliche yeah, that's used yeah, a lot, yeah. but that is the case. So I'll be – and not only did I keep the environment portfolio, I am the shadow minister for small and family business in South Australia because we need to reconnect with that bit, that sector, a sector which abandoned us. And what do you think wholly, that means? But in, in, in a big way on election day. Again – I've got to take time to work that out. But small business needs a government that keeps out of the way most of the time. Uh, it doesn't over-regulate it, provides it with support around startup initiatives and, and advice where appropriate. But most people just want to get on with it with minimal red tape and minimal bureaucracy. Of what course, there's still about, a place for that, but not over the top. Yeah, fair. What do you think about the land tax that was changed. Land tax changes, of course, the, the figures were 92% of people paying land tax paid less. 8% of people were very grumpy because often they paid a lot more. So from an equity point of view, if you're 
talking to people living out in the suburbs and the regions, actually they're better off because of the land tax. They're better off because the vast majority of them who are paying land tax are paying less. And they're better off because there's more money in the government coffers from that last 8% to spend in hospitals and roads and schools and the environment. So, look, I was in a, in a cabinet that backed the land tax reform. I'm not going to walk away from that. But it's certainly the way it was administered, the way that process was taken forward by the then treasurer, was hugely criticised yep. by by some of our traditional supporters. My, I'm not going to reverse the land tax decision. It's here to stay. Uh, Labour are committed to it. But I need to get out there and talk to these people and uh, and hopefully bring them back to the fold if they did, in fact, abandon us on election day. Yeah, because... Um one thing that is, interests me about the land tax thing is that it's always based on like if you were earning like the maximum potential that property could have rather than like what it actually kind of is generating, you know, because there is a property that could generate with a different business model more than another business model and they always treat it like a bigger business Up model. Upper echelon. Yeah. yeah, they always treat yeah. it like more. So. It's so like, look, land tax was is based on the the um, obviously the the value of the the land on which the property sits on. Um, so you could be doing nothing with that land. You could be doing doing all sorts of business um, activities on it. But it's it's the the, the land uh, that that um, you are using uh, to to do your business, to run your rental property or your service station or. Uh, and look, it had a disproportionate impact on eight percent of of um, land taxpayers. I come back to the fact ninety two percent of people are better off, but it got people offside. Again, I have to put a line in the sand and say, I'm here to talk to all South Australians and work out f- what they want from their alternative government. We should always be looking for ways to reduce the burden of taxation, in my view, as a Liberal, uh, as a whole across South Australia. And boy, did we do that when we were in government. Massive reductions to the emergency services levy, massive reductions to payroll tax. As Water Minister, I reduced water bills more than any minister in the state's history. $200 for the average household per year less, about $1,300, $1,400 for the average business. That's big changes yeah and um, so we did significantly reduce cost of living and cost of doing business uh, for south australians while we were in power my job's actually to make sure that doesn't creep up under labor and to hold them account for that because i will be very surprised if it doesn't creep up yeah and what's it been like navigating in a society that gets triggered more than ever and like civil discourse has slowed down we live in an outraged society. Exactly. People want to be outraged um, too often. I, I see that all the time in social media. I can't go on Facebook anymore. Uh, I still use Instagram because it appears to still be a fairly friendly platform, so I still do interact a little bit on there. Uh, but I, I can't go anywhere near Twitter, which is a vile sewer of destruction and hate. And politicians who are purveyors of that, uh, and I'm not going to name them, but they probably know who they are, they, they should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, anyone can go on Twitter. They can pretend to be anyone, uh, and they can just create 
destruction. They can attack people um, in the most personal ways. They can destroy people's mental health and they can push people to suicide. Twitter is a hateful mechanism, which I mm. would love to see wiped off the face of the globe. Really, yeah, What I do you would. think about your boy Elon Musk, you know, <laughs> getting ownership of it? Well, and Elon Musk is my boy. But uh, uh, look... <laughs> I don't really have a particular view on that. My point is social media is a sewer and it ought to be. I think social media ought to be more regulated. In what um, ways? Well, I think the platform should be responsible for some of the statements that are that are made on there. Increasingly, I think we'll see governments across the world really crack down on them because it's not – look, some people argue, Elon Musk, free speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is free speech <laughs> – it's, it's not like writing a letter to the editor of a newspaper. You've got mm. to be careful it doesn't defame people. It's never going to be published if it's overtly offensive, racist, nasty, etc. Social media, you can create a false profile and you just attack, attack, attack. You can create a real profile and just attack, attack, attack. Animal welfare advocates are amongst the worst and most um, un- uh, what? How should I describe them? They're the most. They they lack any level of balance. Mm. And, and I've talked talked about this as environment minister. I I was um, horrendously abused by animal welfare activists. Let me tell you a story. March beginning of March two thousand and twenty. COVID started then, but my story is not about COVID. I was overseas and my brother's wedding. I was overseas when COVID took off, and. Um, at the same time, a fairly junior administrative officer within the Department for Environment uh, issued a permit to cull 80 wombats in an Aboriginal-owned uh, 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 piece of land on the York Peninsula. Those wombats were causing serious damage. They were overabundant. They were, uh, they were eating themselves out of house and home, and they were destroying the productivity of the land. It was a farm. Uh, the department said that you could ki- the the Aboriginal corporation could cull eighty wombats. We're talking there's thousands of wombats across mm. that landscape. It was a an animal management technique. We live in a a, a human altered landscape. Things get out of whack. Sometimes we have to kill things. We kill tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of kangaroos every year. Sorry, folks. Uh, I know people are listening to that and thinking, wow, that is landscape management. Often we do it for environmental reasons. And it's not just kangaroos. Uh, I could read you a long list. Sometimes I thought of myself as the minister for allowing things to be killed. Uh, But (laughs) anyway, let's go back to March 2020. The department issued this permit and uh, somehow it got public. I don't know. Someone told someone who told someone who told someone who told an animal welfare advocate. Um, I'm being kind calling these people advocates. They're not. It's all about self it's not about the animals. It's about self-promotion, self-purpose, and self. Um, just it becomes their being. Uh, their lack of discernment saw them sweep onto my social media platforms at an international level because they are so passionate, but misplaced passion, evil passion, I would go as far as saying. This mm. is organizations like PETA, the Animal Justice Party, the Greens, the Greens here in South Australia from time to time. I've got friends in the Greens in South Australia, but the Greens encouraged this. Mm. Uh, they, uh, they, they were apologists for what then happened. What happened was that tens of thousands of people attacked my social media, tens of thousands of people from right across the world. 
they swept through like a tsunami of hate through my platforms. They saw that I was tagged at a local cafe a few weeks before. They swept through the local cafe's platforms. Wow. Um, they then, uh, they spread faster than COVID. They were, uh, they then managed to infiltrate my brother's platforms and his new wife's platforms. They posted things like, we hope that you, uh, your wedding was ruined by the corpses of wombats hanging from the hall wow. in that small town, South Carolina. I might add some, weren't many dead wombats over there. I'll take one next time I go. But you know, <laughs> this is what these exactly, people are yeah. like. They, uh, animal welfare, um, animal justice advocates, and they believe in something that is worth believing in, looking after animals, caring for animals, but they place the rights of animals well above the rights of people. And as the state's environment minister at the time, many, many, many levels removed from the person who signed off in that destruction permit for wombats, I was attacked from every angle. I've done significant media on this. I did an extended interview on ABC Radio with the presenter at the time, Ali Clark, about this, about the the vile levels of attack, the death threats that came from animal welfare mm. uh, activists. You know, it was the it was a very low point. I had to. Sh- the only way I could stop it was shutting down my social media. Yeah, the hate, the death threats, the attacks on my family, the attacks on coffee shops where I'd had coffee because they said that the coffee shop was a an apologist for Jeez. wombat killers. <laughs> These people, they're hate filled people. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that yeah. was where I saw it manifest most dramatically as environment minister. But you see that all the time. In, oh, yeah. On social media, uh, attacking people for for their race, their their position in society, the the geographical area that they live in, they find a reason and they sweep in, attacking people for their politics. It's that consequentialism, um, the ends justified by the means. That, that that's the that's the problem of how they think because they think it's as long as they achieve their moral position of animal you know welfare they can do whatever it takes mm. to achieve that and that is i think the the biggest difference on a philosophical level between the left and the right is yeah, that we believe in that so. these people you know, are from the left the outrage yeah. the outrage is from the left and they feel so powerfully um motivated and justified that they're doing the right thing now as i say animal welfare is an important issue and we should want animal welfare to be advanced uh, as i was the minister responsible for it but what we don't want uh, is this purve- uh, for 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 these platforms to become places where hate is exercised in a way that people are unaccountable and i don't want anyone to think it's just animal welfare activists i used one example mm. to play out how hateful social media could be and how I'd felt it with death threats to my family, the the wombat in the hall in South Carolina, like, come on. But it plays out in a political sense all the time. And it's not just the the far left either. It's the far right as well to an extent. Uh, But it's the retreat uh, uh, of, of society to more extreme positions perpetuated by the echo chamber that is social media because you only hear what you want to hear. The algorithms that stack this whole thing up uh, ensure that you're getting one source of news, one, one set of opinions, one set of viewpoints, and uh, uh, and then that 
emphasizes your feelings. It emphasizes to you that you are right because you're not hearing alternative viewpoints. And this mm. is where this problem sets in. Uh, look, I'm I'm in favor of more regulation for social media. I absolutely am because I've been a victim of the most horrendous trolling. The federal yeah. government talked about it. Uh, Morrison talked about it late in the campaign. He brought up social media. I think it may have been at one of the town halls. Um, you know, clearly he has been a victim of that echo chamber of extremes. You know, it's not my job, but and everything taken out of context. Do you think that's been the, one of the hardest things for liberals to deal with? Is this this kind of attack, constant attack on people of, on conservative bases? Look, I think the left is more strident and more organised on social media. There's no doubt about that. But people involved in politics, to an extent, have to have a, th- a thick skin and have to just roll with it. And mm. I'm the opposition leader now. I'm not going to go off in a corner and cry if someone's mean to me in social media. However... And this is the big however. I would hate to be in high school in 2022 because I don't know how I could survive high school in 2022 with the hate and the the awfulness which is um, perpetuated on social media. And I worry so much for our school kids in a social media age because social media arrived on the scene when I was at uni. So just a, a few years when I was out of high school, so I just missed the social media era. Um, I worry so much about kids, kids' mental health, kids' suicide rates. Uh, it, My heart actually aches for what our current generation of kids has to endure and may have to endure in the future as mm. this sort of thing um, ramps up. And COVID as well as a, another level of, you know... Of, of, of pressure. Of, of, pressure of pressure and depression and some of that. Yeah, there's no so doubt. I do yeah. really worry about mental health. Look, I think uh, amongst everyone, I think we do have serious mental health challenges in our society today uh, and how we respond to that and how we resource that and how we skill people up to be able to deal with it at a personal level and have more resilience, but also to be able to treat it at a medical level as well. Uh, but I, I I, think the onslaught that our young people face from particularly faceless social media entities and obviously that perfect Instagram world where everyone has a six-pack and uh, um, if they're a bloke and, you know, um, it looks amazing. Uh, Peter Malinowski apparently does. <laughs> well, we haven't seen it lately. He's had, um, he's had three months as premier. He might not have the same time to go to the gym as he wants. No, there. no. Uh, but uh, but you you know what I mean. I I just think social media presents such challenges. I think it's one of the great challenges for modern society. Mm. Definitely, well, it's just changed the whole social dynamic of how we even communicate. You know, like it, technology. Period. Like texting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. People don't pick up the phone anymore. It's weird. Like you're in the dating scene, trying to t- trying to call like girls. They don't like calls. Like, no one likes calls. I don't like calls. calls. No, yeah. I Hamish, like calls. Hamish doesn't like texting. I love calls. No, I love texting. I love Hamish kept, the kept on calling me to, know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to see if I was always coming to And I'm like, just text me. Because <laughs> I've always what got the reporters my, do. They well, text, all right? Well, like, my <laughs> iPad's connected to my text, so I can just type them back real quick while yeah. I'm doing it. You think. have definitely been the better person to speak to in trying to arrange tonight. Yeah, okay, then my staff. (laughs) Just come direct to me, but my staff don't really love that, to be honest. Uh, Look, I'm a texter. I'm a texter. I would send in the, well, maybe not, wouldn't go as far as thousands, but I'd send many, many hundreds of texts a day. 
Yeah, many that's many hundreds of takes. You'd have a lot of phone calls as well, surely. Yeah, that that's one thing that stepped up since becoming the leader. The number of phone calls and the amount of time I spend on the phone, managing all sorts of issues, doing way more media, but phone call after phone call after phone call. I'm just like, stop. How do you deal with like lobbyists, people that like want to get close to like. Be persuasive. I've never had a great deal of problem with that. I've, I've always sort of kept my distance from most lobbyists. But I, uh, uh, you know, there's a lobbyist register here and it's not the MP or the minister who has to disclose. It's the other way around. The lobbyist has to dis- disclose mm. that they've met, met with someone. So, uh, look, as environment minister, I didn't get a lot of lobbying at all. There were obviously things along the way, but it wasn't, wasn't a common thing. Yeah. Um, there's appropriate ways to meet them, but you've got to be uh, just really se- sensible and and careful about that. Um, it's a justified part of of the political process um, when carefully considered and measured. Yeah, fair. Okay, so in terms of social media, what kind of regulation do you think that we will see as a world in how we're going? Because to me, it looks like we're heading to more centralization of like one world movements you know starting with medicine being a huge one um with the world economic forum like being able to shut down places now and we agreed to that i'm pretty sure if i'm not mistaken that we agreed to kind of forego our right of choice of how we go about the next pandemic um but i think have you you heard that i'm not i'm not on top of that, no. So I can't comment on yeah, the world, the world health rules. It looks like we're going more in a centralisation world. I think we definitely are. And then there's obviously good and bad side of that. Um, but with social media, what kind of regulation do you think that we will actually manifest? And how do you think they'll get in the way of like well, a this free is speech? difficult because I'm a, I'm a passionate believer in free speech, but I'm not a believer in trolling and bullying and um, senseless and faceless attacks. Mm. So I mm. think I, I think um, there needs to be a balance struck there. Um, I'm not sure if it's around um, people having to prove their identity on these platforms. You know, there's nothing yeah. to stop me setting up uh, Joe Blogs 1984 at hotmail.com and uh, setting up a Facebook page. Look page. out for that Joe Blog. Yeah, yeah. No, Do- Dodgy that Joe was Blogs, such a good double entendre. Yeah, yeah. Joe Blog, nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four. This man. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> been listening to Kendrick. George or- Orwell. Hey. Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing to stop me doing that, and then setting up in a Twitter account, a Facebook account, um, an Instagram account, and then just just trolling and and being awful is it a little bit harder on facebook because you do have to sort of have a critical mass of friends i think to be I f- legitimate i feel like that side is definitely well agreed on yeah. around the world Verification. all, all, yeah, all but, platforms but are kind of like yeah we are trying to get on top of bots yeah you know they keep coming and they keep deleting and i feel like yeah, that's a part of social media bots i'm not a bot of i you know faker fake an email account and a, a photograph and and go trolling around the place and Attacking, yeah. So just anonymity. Anonymity. I don't do. I don't have time to troll. I think it should be like opening up a bank account. I think that's the kind of level of. So that's that. That's a big step up. That's a big step up, and of course, that's very onerous to do. Uh, And the administrative side of that would then maybe cost money. Because 
because you can look at like Instagram profile, you know, for, for all of us here, it, it, that's our business in a lot yes. of ways. Like that's good. Yeah. I think if you're running it as a business, then, you know, the, the verification stuff needs to be much more sharp. But they do it with trading accounts pretty effectively, like online trading accounts. Yes. You have to do the photo of yourself. Yep. You have to yeah. have it next to your driver's and license. You have to do it that. for the authentic authenticated accounts with the, the blue ticks and things like that you've yeah. got to yep. be legitimate and what is that process like you got blue tick yeah yeah i've got blue tick how'd you get the blue tick i felt so fulfilled hey mom i've got a blue tick <laughs> i've made it yeah no, i'm joking how'd you um, get it uh, there's an authentication process so you've got to prove who you are and um demonstrate why you deserve a blue tick but it's not over the top but it was much easier to get it i can't believe we're talking about this much easier to get it on instagram uh, no on facebook than instagram instagram was trickier in what way like what did you it have took to, longer and was it just more a form did you just apply a form or did you have them come to you but well, like, yeah, facebook man, you just appeared tick? one day i'm like oh i've got a blue tick oh but that is a lot easier <laughs> that didn't happen until i became a minister Okay, and what somebody just knew I don't know from if someone in the Facebook world did that, and but Instagram you had to apply for it. There was some sort of authentication process, yeah, which required ID, I think. And what you just had this staff, was a few years ago. Staff did it, or you did it, or uh, it was a it was a combination. It was a a joint effort. Yeah, that's cool. It, it, it is, but it sounds a bit indulgent, a bit of a first world thing. I can't get my blue tick. Oh, hell yeah, but look, let's be but happy But the blue tick is quite yeah. important, yeah. by yeah, the way. We haven't got a blue tick. The blue yeah. tick <laughs> is quite important so, yeah. that pe- to, so that there aren't fake profiles off you. Yeah, you're verified. you know, It is a verification, so it is part of that protection that is slightly built in for people at a certain level because you don't want fake David Spears as going around and, you know, again, trolling Peter Malinaskis. Hate your six-pack. That'd be yeah. pretty <laughs> funny, though. Who hates anyone's six-pack? Want was, your six-pack. Uh, well, yeah, you know, um, and I was reading an interesting article about that particular topic is that um, an agency called Simple did Malinowskis' uh, election campaign, right? They yes. did all the marketing for a year. And they said that the moment that they took that photo the algorithm went bonkers. Like that's when they think when he, when the election went from, it went from being, you know, like close to uh, a lot more kind of going, trending towards the Labour Party way. And it was based on the, on their marketing photo. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's Which very, is sad. very sad. Isn't very sad. It's you know? very sad. But he may have won well, quite we, a lot you'll, of it, you'll, yeah. you'll know where I'll be between now and the next election in the gym. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you're, you are. I mean, I remember we going back ages ago. We would have had conversations about that. I, mean, I remember vividly of you doing these massive box jumps of a PT. Yeah, outdoors. yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, rate my fitness level, but I'm not, I'm not unfit. He's so fit, you're he's like fit a to run. He's fit like to run. <laughs> I'm. Uh, look, I could. I, I, I'm not going to be rating myself against Peter Malinowskis, but you have to remember he's five years older than me, so. Uh, look, the next election, he might be. <laughs> might be. If you look back on, on um, photos of him in the past, he, he wasn't always um, as fit as he was now. So, like, good on him. Good on him, I think. Because I do think I place a, a premium on health and fitness. I think it is so important uh, to keep mentally sharp yep. uh, to, and, and physical fitness is an important part of that. And so I do say good on him for actually setting an example yeah. uh, because there's not enough leaders that do that. And I think I uh, I do work very hard on health and fitness. I eat healthily. I do lots of outdoor exercise. I paddleboard. I 
get into the water whenever I can, and I am um, paddleboarding, like stand up paddleboarding. Yeah, stand, stand up paddleboarding. I paddleboard lots. You surf a lot. Oh, I, well. used, not, I used to. I used to. I did surf life sailing for years. How long's your board? How long's my paddleboard? Or your surfboard? Nah, I don't have one at the moment. But how Sold long? What, how what did you surf? Longboard, shortboard, six <sighs> foot? I sort of in between board and ass. Six foot's too short for me. So probably six two, a little bit. Six four. Si- a little bit bigger. Yeah, six four. That's ideal for Middleton. That's a good like. Well, place. that's where I go. Middleton's yeah, yeah, yeah. my place of choice because Middleton has very consistent surf. Mm. And so, well, Middleton's got everything. So you've got at the point where you can actually do some pretty serious surfing, and, or you can have those consistent low waves that you can just practice your technique on. Mm. So Middleton is a very, um, I think, a very user friendly uh, surf beach because you can you can get up your skills and those lower waves and then when you want to go out the back or over to the point you can get better uh, and you can challenge yourself uh, look you wouldn't catch me at Waipinga or at some of those beaches what about Parsons you might be able to do Parsons I don't know I've I got dumped at Boomers years we ago we do nights in Boomer well, probably yeah. when I was about 20 yeah. 21 and I really that that put me off for quite a long time oh, yeah. look I was uh, I spent a fair bit of time well, certainly as environment minister out on the west coast, the the west coast of the Air Peninsula. And that is, I look out there and I see people surfing waves that are coming straight off the Southern Ocean and I'd be I'd be dead in a second. I'd be crushed, <laughs> big crushed like a grape. Streaky Bay. Streaky Bay, yeah. Elliston, uh, to Cactus. Uh, you know, there's some, I love watching it. I love the ocean. And I you am. were out there recently. Yeah, uh, I was. That way. Yeah. yeah, that's a great part of the state. I'm doing lots of regional trips at the moment, but I love, I love that. I love, I love that. that section between Sejuna and Port Lincoln. Yeah. Breathtaking yeah. coastline. You know, there's sea eagles, there's ospreys, which is type of sea eagle I love. I actually chair the Friends of Osprey in South Australia. I've got to chair a meeting of, of that later this evening, um, which is a, a conservation um group uh, but that coast is wild there's nothing between that coast that's the beginning of this great australian bite and there's nothing between there and antarctica that yeah. is a breathtaking part of the state that's some fit there's so many south australians that haven't been over there no it's, yeah it's quite like it's devastating i've never been there well it's yeah, far away exactly yeah it's just bloody far yeah, it's, away. it's just a distance it and it's the economics of it as well for like you know to get there it's getting more yeah. popular um yeah. there's a lot more and I, I i would say if you are going over there please tread lightly because people do take four-wheel drives and drive over the beaches and sand dunes and are causing chaos over there that's happened a lot since covid but if you it is a absolutely stunning part mm. of our state very few people a handful of percent of south australians have probably spent any time over there but mm. i could retire over there furthest i've been of south australia is port lincoln okay that so you're cool. not far off no not i'm not far, far off. but and i loved port you're lincoln. talking an hour and you're up to ellison an hour and a half yeah, i never yeah. went there that sounds, sounds I've, been, I've been to cactus that was cactus great. is beyond beyond seduna yeah now that's in, that is just one of the best trips I ever did, I went caving as environment minister wow. in Nullarbor National Park. But what do you mean caving? Under caves. But like, did you have like abseil roping down yep. caves? Yep. Oh, that's yep. wild. Dude, that's A little sick. bit, a little bit. Uh. Helmets and all that sort of stuff, squeezing through little holes. We had one, one, one we had to squeeze through and we couldn't take the ranger with us because he couldn't <laughs> fit through. Look, it's, we've got some incredible places in the States. I did that in Budapest with George and George at that time was pretty tubby. And he couldn't get through this. <laughs> he couldn't get through this spot, and it was the funniest thing. He got through, but like it was a wiggle. And and I was yeah. there like racing the the instructor because I was like. 
10 kilos less than I am now. So I was like super skinny. And um, yeah, it was fun. For George. Yeah, we had to leave this ranger behind. And that was that was at Nullarbor National Park in the Nullarbor Wilderness Area. And that's the national park that runs to the edge of the state. Yeah, um, you know, that and, and seeing the Bunda Cliffs that form part of the, the landscape Bunda over there. Bunda Cliffs. So the Bunda, B-U-N-D-A. The Bunda Cliffs are the longest line of sea cliffs in the world. And they are in South Australia. Wow. They run from the Western Australian border 200k in to South Australia. And they're like limestone cliffs? To, uh, well... I'm not a geologist. I'm not sure what they are. George, 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 we need would, know. You George would know. They're, they're cliffs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're massive cliffs. And the waves are just like 20 rolling meters? in. Head of bites there. Like 20 metres high uh-huh. kind of cliff? Like what do you reckon? No, we've seen a foot. No, we no, have no, some these good are photos. massive. These yeah. are the longest line of unbroken sea cliffs in the like world. How high are they? And they're here. Well, they're higher than 20 metres. Oh, so they're huge. Yeah, they're big. These are serious cliffs. It's like Ed, It's like a crust and then drop. Oh, so yeah, I've yeah. seen that in um, in Scotland. I yeah, saw that probably in Scotland, but they're not the longer, <laughs> longest unbroken line in the world. No, but that's I did right see it there. here, and and that's where Head of Bite is. That's where the whales come in the whale nursery. And yep. I, this is the time of August is probably the best time of year to go. That's when I actually went. But uh, August twenty twenty, it is just the best, and that's here. Mm. In this day, that sounds good. That has been. Can the, you drive next thing. to it and stuff? Mm. Yeah, you can get pretty close. Yes, yeah, yeah. You That's could drive down to it at certain points and then look at it. Okay, fair. But it is wild. Okay, I so love wild. My boy Will Gilmore would want me to say this. Mm. He is a like marine biologist, and he's been spending a lot of time over COVID down at Victoria. Oh, not Victoria. Down at uh, Victor Harbour. Victor Harbour, yeah. With all the um, he essentially studies whales yeah, and okay. how whales like. Use that as their home yep, to their, their have their little kids. Yep. Yeah, the nursery, right? But supposedly there is like several ships that will come and like try to get close to them all the time and it keeps scaring them off. Well, there's rules about that. There's pretty strict rules around interfering with native species and, and how close you can get to whales. So um, I'm not sure they're getting scared off. Don't want to. What was his name? Will? Will. Will yeah. Gilmore. So I don't want to diss him, but. There's more whales than ever before. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's not more whales than ever before. There's a particular there's a boat. Bef- there's a particular boat that does tours. That's he's saying that is that. Yeah, that's okay. the problem. Well, he should report it to the National Parks and I Wildlife Service. Been. Okay, there is yeah. a discussion. I don't know yeah, where they got discussion right yet. now about. But the it, great but, thing yeah. about whales at the moment, mm. whale population is growing, and obviously whaling ended X number of years ago. I think in the seventies or eighties, and the population is very slow to recover because gestation period is very slow. They're massive species, but they are recovering. Yeah, you see whales now at this time of year off Hallet Cove. You know, yeah, and Christie's Beach, Christie's down Beach, in the southern suburbs. But Hallet Cove, I represent Hallet Cove. I'm a very proud Hallet Cove boy, as I keep on saying. And to see whales there, that that's recovery. That's conservation recovery, and that, that's a great thing. If you give the natural environment a helping hand, it helps itself pretty quickly. Yeah, I like the boardwalk you did down there. Yep, there's some pretty good things down there. Chris's Beach good. is good for a surf every now and then it as well. It is. Nice. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so is Hallett Cove. I, mm. I haven't surfed at Hallett Cove. Too many rocks, but some of the better surfers will surf down there. Yeah. How do you find yeah. that most people are... Given that the, we have this outrage culture in person, because you're obviously going around in person a heap. Most people. people are fine in person. Everybody's pretty chill. Occasionally, if I don't block someone for outrage on social media where they call me terrible names, sometimes I'll say, have a coffee. T- talk to me about it. 
Yeah. People are, they usually just go away. Yeah, fair. But when I do, it's usually, it's very easy to have a conversation, you know, and, and a rational one. But this again is the, the, the great failing of social media. You, they're behind a screen. They're hidden. Yeah. They can say whatever they want. So in terms of like giving people some nuggets of gold that are like young and wanting to level up in life and, you know, rise to positions like you're in, um, what kind of pieces of advice would you have for how to navigate like your career that you've, that have been really good for you, how to navigate the business world, how to navigate the political world? Like it's all about relationships, building relationships with people. Um, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the um, smartest guy in cabinet or shadow cabinet, but you build relationships over time and relationships are your currency in many ways. And, uh, you know, over nearly 20 years in Australia since arriving here as a kid, I have built just a, a, a multitude of relationships, not intentionally actually, but bit by bit over time. I've not always been in Adelaide since that time, so that obviously helps. Uh, and and bit by bit, piece by piece, you build those relationships. You, you allow people to rely on you. Uh, you, you do people favours. You help people out. You provide people with support. And... Um, and you ask people to uh, to join you on the journey as well. So relationships really, really important. Mm. I think truth's really important. So I I call it out. That sometimes gets me in trouble, uh, but I tend to be very straight talking and just say it as it is. Try not to be offensive in that, but. I think people really appreciate truth because with truth comes certainty. People know what you're on about, not hiding things, you're not dancing around the issue, you're being straight to the point and focused on what you're after, what you're you're about. And so truth is incredibly important to me Um, and, and, and has been a way that I've been able to to advance and I think invest in your interpersonal skills and your communication skills um what are some good ways to do that well look public speaking is critical you're not going to get I just think almost everyone who has achieved significant things in politics and leadership uh in um in business can communicate both in writing which I do think is very important uh, but also up front in front of a crowd, on a stage, um, over a video presentation, you got you got to invest in the tools of your trade and leadership. Um, the the biggest I mentioned relationships and then communication. Another big thing you got to invest in your communication skills. You've got to be able to stand up the front and sell a message, bring people on a journey. Um, whether you go to a public speaking club, I did that while I was at uni, went to an organisation called Rostrum um, for a period. I'm still loosely associated with th- that organisation. I don't have time to go anymore. And it feels a bit awkward. It seems a bit lame to some people potentially, but you've got to invest in the tools of your trade. What things have you learnt in developing your communication that have made a real difference? Practice. It's all practice. Mm. I stand up there in Parliament now and speak in a way that I would, could only have dreamt of speaking it in eight years ago, but it is practice. 
uh, everything's practice preparation before giving a speech. I gave a speech the other day that I was really unhappy with. I largely had to read it because I didn't have time to practice beforehand. I didn't have time to develop that speech myself. It was written for me largely. And I went back to my staff and said, no, never again. We actually need to work out a way to give me space when I've got to give a serious speech to develop it up myself, maybe with the help of staff and people providing an input. Absolutely. But we have to find me space to do that. So do practice preparation. Or do you like have like full passages? Vast majority of the time a dot point or even less. Um, just keywords and things like that. Mm. But the one that I did the other day where I was in a rush, I didn't have time to practice. I'd had uh, a big weekend of events and and um, was unable to sit down and spend two or three hours just crafting a speech now sometimes it's good to craft the speech word for word and then reduce it to dot points and i won't say it word for word uh, like it was written when i reduce it to dot points and i will not articulate it in maybe the way that i did um if it had been written down but i think there's a genuineness and a uh, and a, a level of focus around saying what you actually mean and want to say when it's coming off the top of your head at a moment of time. So it's from like the heart. academic but or something. it all takes time, practice, and preparation. Hey, Will, There's could no you quick put fixes. the heater on again? Yeah, sure. Please? Thank you. There are no quick fixes, and there are no get-rich-quick schemes. There's no way to run the marathon and, uh, you know, uh, somehow circumvent the full circuit and get to the finish line without going the whole way around. That's one thing I learned. You know, unless you happen to buy a lottery ticket, there's no there's no scheme to get you to the uh, to the huge wealth or to the top of the leadership pack. You just got to work and keep pushing on. Just be consistent. Consistency. Yeah. Like, and Fair. that's presumably how Peter Malinowski has got his six pack. Yeah. And good it's on the same yeah, formula. Good on yeah, him. Same formula. Everything's consistency. You just yeah. got to be consistent. Yeah. And I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I come and go in terms of consistency. Yeah, but. I mean, you're human, right? Mm. And then, okay, so what time do you get up? Like, what, you, what time at do you... At 6 o'clock. 6 a.m., you not awake or... Yeah, awake at 6. And then what time do you get started with, like, life? Do you have some I things like, that you do look, first? I try or? to have a bit of ritual in the morning. I try to get between 7 and 7.30 down to my favourite coffee shop on Jetty Road, Brighton called cream shout out to cream and it stands for coffee rules everything around me oh and that's good i uh, <laughs> i try to get down there i don't get down there quite as much now i'm the leader of the opposition but i try to get down there do my emails clear my head sometimes i do lots of emails sometimes i do very few always send a snapchat to keep my streaks alive massive snapchat user i've just panned social <laughs> I media that. i've just panned social media i love media. that but I so Snapchat. Uh, let me tell you a little story about the good that social media can do. So I grew up on a farm in Scotland, family farm, grandparents, cousins there, really tight with my cousins, loved them like they were like brothers and sisters to me. Moved to Australia and left them, and we grew apart. And we stayed loosely in contact. The odd Facebook message when Facebook became a thing, chat, catch up with them when I went back. Two thousand and nineteen was back there, August 2019, sitting at the dining room table. My One of my cousins, they all work in the farm still, and one of my cousins pulls out his phone and gets a little Snapchat notification. I'm like, do you have Snapchat? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, me too. We added each other. Last week, all my cousins and my aunt, we all tipped a thousand-day streaks. 
Uh. And for a thousand days, we've swapped pictures every 24 hours. And that has brought my family closer together yeah, than well. we have been for 20 years. And so I have just spent a large part of this conversation panning social media. But through COVID, through a serious, serious and terminal family illness, which is not going to necessarily have, a, won't have a happy ending for one of my family members, through the birth of my first second cousin who I have um, not met yet because he was born during COVID uh, through the seasons of Scotland, Christmas Day um, through the goose that flies back to my family farm every year and lays a nest of eggs on the top of the hedge you know, I've seen that year on year on year and uh, a thousand day streak and going strong with my cousins Andrew uh, well, not Andrew, he's the one that doesn't do it. Jonathan, David, he's got the same name as me, and Rachel and my Aunt Margaret. That's and our family's closer together because of it. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I. That's why I got into social media. I went away to um, New York on an exchange for university, and I was like, how am I going to share about my journey? I started with WhatsApp, and it just didn't really click to be like, oh, let me upload photos and stuff to here because it was, just didn't yeah. work well for me. And then I found Instagram. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is perfect. I upload photos and then I have like really, really long captions and tell the stories yeah. about what I'm doing. Yeah. And I just learned from all this personal development courses I've been doing about this thing called Vivid Share Technology. So it's a way of sharing that's like really detailed and present. And, yeah, okay. you know, it's mm. a first person like narration. Like it feels like you're reading a book. Yeah. So I'd write in that style. And then I really like writing lyrics and music. So it like played in yeah. with that uh, passion of mine. And it, yeah. So you should, look. Uh, as I say, there is a place where social media goes horribly wrong and becomes a cancer in society. But I just gave an anecdote where it can be a really great thing. And yeah, I've got, be. so one of my morning rituals is to make sure I send my snap streak. And like I mentioned several that, uh, that are over a thousand now, but I've got, I've got two that are just touching four years with a couple of mates. So, you know, snap streak is lasting four years and let me tell you if we lost those streaks we would be gutted we would be absolutely gutted but it's amazing when you send that and some pictures are boring obviously you know the ceiling of parliament house or my same long black coffee at cream but (laughs) there'll be certain messages certain snapchats that we send especially the ones from overseas which prompt out what's that Mm. and both ways they'll send something and I'll sense, and uh, what's that? And then you'll have a conversation. And, you know, they were, they were waiting for their Snapchat on the day I became the opposition leader. They stayed up till the vote got counted. Oh, just a, actually, it was probably just a, a message. But they were there on Snapchat. They said, we're not going to bed yeah. until we know this result. Now, if it hadn't been for Snapchat reconnecting us three years ago... Uh, that wouldn't have been the case. And I was just saying to my cousin this morning that, or yesterday that we will, uh, I'll be there in five weeks' time and we'll take a snap um, together again. That's cute. So, mm. yeah. Um, so I've been doing a bit of research at the, at the moment of like what it means to be a man and reading uh, books and stuff about that. And I wanted to get your thoughts on from you know your life so far. What does it mean to be a man to you? Oh, gee, that's a big question. Whoa. That's a question that could get some Kings. politician in a lot of trouble. What is um, a man, definitionally? <laughs> no, not like that, no, but no, just no, like, what does kidding. it mean to be well, a man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> that is a very hard question, not something I've ever really put a lot of thought into. I suppose it's, it's different for, for a different person. But look, I strongly believe in contribution. 
contribution to society, contribution to community, and whether that's a leadership or at a different at a leadership level or at a different level, contributing something uh, is part of of being in my in my view. So leaving a legacy and it doesn't need to be a new national park or a, a skyscraper you built in Adelaide but leaving a legacy and relationships and family and uh, in a tree that you planted uh, in in something like that you know mm. I think that's part of, of being and perhaps for me that's part of what it is to, to be a man that is not a, a conversation uh, and not a topic that I've dealt with delved particularly deeply you don't think you at times you you think to yourself maybe i've got to balance you know my kind of macho responses and more kind of more of a caring feminine responses to to things going on around you as a leader you know sometimes you might want to go uh, in the opposition you might go attack dog yeah. and that's that you know masculine kind of thing and other times you're dealing with colleagues and or maybe you're even dealing with the other side of politics and you have to be kind of going into that more caring approach or bipartisan approach Oh, definitely, definitely. So, you know, as I said earlier, to get things done, you've got to have relationships. You've got to be able to build those connections. And I don't know if that's leaning more into the feminine side or the feminine, as people say. I I don't know. That is not something I have had time to self-evaluate, I suppose. Mm. How do you put your foot down in terms of in like a workplace culture and like do it respectfully? Yeah. How have you navigated that? Because been been hard disagreements or like ways that you would be treat you're being treated by someone or you're treating someone like how have you navigated conflict in a workplace scenario? Gee, mm. I, uh, conflict is very difficult. Conflict. Some people are. Go- I don't th- actually. I was about to say some people are good at managing conflict. I think very few people are. I think a lot of people either blow up at conflict or put their head in the, the sand. I think you've got to build, again, build, try to build relationships where you can have truthful, honest, detailed conversations with people and be really clear about expectations from the beginning. So having established a shadow cabinet in the last 50-odd 50, 50 days, I am trying to build... Um, expectations into my team so it can be a culture of expectation a culture of delivery a culture of achievement together but that is um that's not easy yeah so what kind of expectations do i have, have created my team? In, yeah well again i'm still setting those because you don't can't set those to uh, on day one i don't believe you can in some respects but you've got to work up your values work out what you want to achieve together now what do we want to achieve we want to win the election in four years time mm. That's what we want to achieve. Uh, Simple uh, goal. So, but there's a lot of nuanced um, layers of, of things that we need to achieve to get to that point. We need mm. good policy development. We need good connection with the South Australian community. We need good campaigning skills. We need good... I need my shadow uh, ministers to have the skills of communication, the skills of stakeholder engagement and management, community engagement. So that's all the stuff we're working on now so that then we can talk about our ambition for the state and then we can pitch this alternative vision. But it is, you're not going to get any new policies from the David Spears Liberal team uh, 50 days in because we've got a lot of work to do. Our party has been shattered with a catastrophic election result. Let's not... Yeah, why do you think you lost? Let's not face that. So we... uh, Let's not deny that i mean and let's face 
the reality of it and build from it. Why did we we ran? A, why did we lose? We I've been very public about this. We ran a very bad campaign. What about it? Do you think it had no? It had no. It had no narrative. It had no um, over underpinning um, uh, underpinning narrative un- we didn't talk about what no it wasn't at all inspiring i wasn't inspired by it mm. we didn't talk about we neither talked about what we achieved in government and let's face it we kept south australia safe one of the safest places in the world and our covid outcomes were second to none across the globe pretty much give or take perhaps one or two places but we didn't sell that message we didn't own that we didn't celebrate that we didn't celebrate the the ec- the economy thriving we didn't uh, sell projects in a coherent way and we also didn't talk about the future you know we didn't talk about why why bother reelecting us and you know Stephen Marshall one of my friends and mentors I, I i think that guy is a great leader but something went wrong in the coherency of the election campaign, we didn't communicate. We went straight with the South Australian people. We didn't look them in the eye and say, this is why we should be elected, folks. Get on board with us. They got on board with us in 2018 to an extent. We got across the line. They, we were broadly popular through through the term. Stephen Marshall was broadly popular going into election day. But people turned up in those polling booths and voted against us en masse. We lost all our marginal seats, but then some. We, I'm the only liberal dancer. Yeah. All my... Mm. And, and I, I hold a seat that should have been one of the first to be swept away. My seat should have been swept away demographically. Marginally. Yeah, first. Yeah. Yeah. But I held pretty strong, took a bit of a haircut in my margin, but compared to those around me... I stood firm because of engagement, because people in my community knew, one, I had their back, two, what I stood for, three, what I had delivered them, and four, what I was going to deliver them. And uh, some of my colleagues at an individual level didn't do that well, and they know who they are, and they're not there anymore. And some of my... But the central, central strategy didn't work either. Do you think... uh, I think some commentators have said at times that... You know, Stephen and and the party ran it very much as um uh, in that time as a as a business operation, and the po- the politic was maybe put to the side, and that uh, Mount Askers played very very strong politics. You know, in terms of aspiring campaign, when to hit, when not to hit. Do you think that? Uh, um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think Stephen's approach was like a chief executive, uh, general manager, uh, solid performance focus, pretty good government overall. Now people will criticise certain aspects of his government, the government I was part of, absolutely. But I think we ran a reasonably steady ship in very difficult times, global pandemic, mm-hmm. etc. But, but we didn't. Do politics well. Good govern, good at governing, bad at politics. You know, I'd I'd say that. Do you think that's uh, for you? There's an agenda of trying to bring some of these conservative independents back into the fold. I'll work on that. I've got great relationships with all of them, every single one of them. Yeah, I will reach across the party and across the parliament. I've got a good relationship with Peter Malinowskis. Yeah, yeah, no, um, not. Uh, I, I don't have a relationship with all his cabinet. Like, I don't come across them. I don't need to have a relationship on a, a working level. But okay, I think Peter Malinowskis and I, um, if we weren't facing off against each other, we'd probably be friends in many ways mm. because um, I think we've got similar motivations and, uh, and, you know, 
I'm not going to criticise him at a personal level. I'll criticise aspects of his budget, aspects of his government. I'll criticise underperformance. You've got some pretty underperforming ministers, I can say that straight up. But Who are they? I'm not going to Call name them here. Oh, well, look. Uh, we, well, I'll, I'll say it in Parliament, so why wouldn't I say it here? Look, I think we've seen some disappointing... Um, Perform a disappointing performance from Nat Cook, the Human Services Minister. Yep. Um, there's I no agree. doubt about that. But there's others, there's others, and we'll see over time. It's early days, and they actually deserve the opportunity to have a crack at running the state. They won. Mm. They won. Peter Malinowskis, and was it on his acceptance speech, he said, we're, we're not enemies, we're adversaries. Yeah. And, and look, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. Um, I don't want to hate him. I don't hate him. I don't hate Labour. My background's far more Labour than Peter Malinowskis's. His is far more liberal than mine. Um, what do you mean? S- well, his, his, his demographic background, where he went to school, where he grew up, his pathway in life. Yeah, okay. My pathway in life. Much more mm. traditional Labour. His much more traditional Liberal. I think every, many people have observed that. Many commentators have mm. observed that. Strong union, union movement in Scotland. As yes, well. there's been yeah. very. There have been Scottish politicians in Australia. And they're generally before, a Labour Party. <laughs> and they have not been on my side of politics. No. that's for yep. sure. But uh, look, I'm not. I'm gonna. He deserves. He's got a mandate from the South Australian people. Labour have that, so that makes my job a little bit difficult at first because you've got to, you've got to let, let them have a crack at delivering that mandate, but still holding them to account, um, casting an alternative vision telling South Australians who David Spears is and what I would do differently to lead this state. It's a balancing act. I don't want to be out there whinging and whining every single day. Mm, fair. No. How do you think we went in terms of, like, as a nation and as a state with COVID and uh, measures and whatnot? Because, like, in relation to personal freedoms and what that means because we, you know... Look, it had a lot I, of think we, I, I think we got the balance right. South Australia, if you take pretty much as an average of restrictions across the main pandemic, um, had the least. And, uh, you know, we had incredible outcomes with death rates. You know, it's sad to see anyone die of anything. Four people died between the start of that pandemic and the 23rd of November 2021 when we opened up this state. And there's obviously been several hundred since then. Um, but by that time, vaccinations had occurred. I was very comfortable with the way this state was managed. We maintained a strong economy, a healthy population and a relative sense of freedom. Yes, it was difficult if you wanted to travel overseas, if you wanted to get here, if you wanted to cross borders, if you certain professions, first responders, people working in hospitals, nursing homes, schools. And gee, we got it. We owe them a lot. But compared to I was remember, I was sending snaps every day. Every day, mm. snaps being exchanged between here and the UK. I know where I'd rather be. Yeah, I think Dave is right. Like, and obviously, Hamish, we've been you know very critical of COVID stuff in South Australia, but <clears throat> you can only judge it on the inefficiency of government. At the end of the day, like you got to judge it from government to government because government's not good at something on this range. Like, how do you tell people they have to sit down while they're drinking at a pub? You know, it's not a particularly easy. Uh, thing to achieve and you know other countries they haven't got a chance to go to the pub for two years yeah what are your thoughts on like vaccine mandates and they're like 
Vaccine mandates, look, um, I'd like to see um, mandates step back bit by bit by bit, and I think they have. How, when was the last time someone said you had to be triple vaxxed to do anything? I think it's just uh, the Oval. Is that the no, last the Oval's one? dropped their vaccine. The Oval's vaccine, dropped it now. Yeah, there's mandate. very little. So and then there were look, shows. I, but, but, but look at the system. It worked, didn't it? You know, we li- lift the restrictions, lift the requirements, get the population sorted. COVID's still here. People are still dying. Every day, pretty much, but there's a level of we, we got through. We got through compared again to the UK and the US. The US. So I was on a um, a news website the other day, about a, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. As in, like you were talking? On no, it? no, I was looking, looking for a piece yep. of news internet in the US. Yeah, and I wanted to look something up, and. I saw this sort of feature article down the bottom and it said, as the US tips one million deaths, we look at the country that did the best. Do you know what country that was? Australia. Yep. Well, what news article was that? Like what publication? It was New York Times. New York Times, New York yeah. Times. I saw the article, yeah. Yeah, we look at the country that did best. That was us. Well, there you go. We only had one uh, big bump and that was obviously what when those protests and riots were happening in Melbourne, that was the dark days. You did say one thing recently... Um, uh, about the emergency COVID laws that just passed and called it uh, dark age dictatorship. I did because yeah. I didn't like... So you're stepping back from a emergency declaration in this state and Peter Malinowski sort of wanted to be here on this. I'm, I'm Premier and I were coming out of the the emergency declaration. Nicholas Spurrier and Grant Stevens have been the the controllers in some way uh, and, and, well, really Grant Stevens is the emergency control... Uh, head of that, Nicholas Perez, key advisor to all of that. Mm. They they sort of step back, the Premier takes uh, charge and it becomes part of a subcommittee of cabinet. That was their their plan. But what we saw was they just pushed all the, the laws that were in the emergency declaration on the Emergency Management Act into a public health piece of legislation. So, you know, we wanted if we are on a journey towards mm, a very different um environment in terms of control and mandates the the penalties should step down so we did not like the penalties the penalties that were being advocated in this new bill which mirrored essentially what what um were were in the emergency declaration and what were those well it included jail time was seventy five thousand uh big fines big fines and jail time so we said we won't support jail time and we'll step down fines yeah so how how similar is that to what dan andrews eventually achieved is that is that a similarity I, it, I don't know i don't know what yeah. what they've achieved over there but what we didn't think jail time was appropriate at this stage of the pandemic 100 agree yeah yeah well do you think it was ever appropriate to jail people for like leaving their house and stuff oh look like on a fundamental be, level i think it would be a last resort um, but we needed people doing the right thing in those early days. You know, we had difficult times. I was overseas, as I mentioned, getting accused of wombat killings in America <laughs> in early March 2020. When I got back here, the modelling that we were presented with was based on the modelling that had been undertaken for Northern Italy, you know, where lots and lots yeah, and, that was and scary. lots of people were dead. But I feel and like after six months... Like we could see the difference in the world, that it wasn't based on that anymore. Well, not, well, a lot of it was because we closed the borders. 
We could have ended up like that. The tightness of the borders made a massive difference combined with over 18 months or so mm. vaccination rates. Yeah, but didn't they also find that a lot of it was like uh, skewed because they had such an ageing population in terms of the amount of deaths There was they some had? of that. There was some of that. But they weren't vaccinated. It went like wildfire. New York, they were piling up people in alleyways behind hospitals. I was in New York a couple of weeks before that, uh, you know. We were very scared. Mm, uh, 100%. And I society was 100% very agree. scared. I 100% agree. I 100% agree for that first six months. Yeah. 100% agree. I think after that six months point where more information started to come out and we were seeing that there was other treatments and whatnot that were working around the world, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Hydrochloric side. No, no, no. no. It's uh, monoclonal antibodies was seen to be... I'm not a medical expert. Yeah, yeah, I know you're not. Anything about those. Anyway, it's said to be like the best one. It was a more expensive one, but there was others that were working as well that would have lowered that hospitalisation. They even even came out with um, this antidepressant drug the people that are on it, it would lower their hospitalisation of COVID by up to 90% as well. So there's all these different like uh, early treatment measures that were actually showing that... uh, hospitalization decline so my question was why do we continue to have uh such like strict measures in terms of how people can go about living their lives instead of just saying here's alternatives that we can do if you get it let's go into like a how you manage it like we have now but like a year earlier and allowed just government government's always it's always behind do their thing you know what i mean Yes, well, and that's true. A year earlier, you would have let people do their thing and experiment and ask doctors for certain things, but, you know. We're still not doing that, though. Like, there's no, there's no early treatment I, guides. I don't feel... I don't feel remor- there's a lot of things I'll talk about. Medical treatments for COVID are not a speciality of mine at all, and I just don't feel equipped to comment. Okay, fair enough. Here's a good swivel for you, right? <laughs> swivel is, um, here's I, a good, I need to eat at some point. Yeah, do you want some pizza? Do you have pizza? Yeah, I'm yeah, so we got pizza. pizza. Uh, can you grab some pizza for yeah, us? Thanks, I, d- I last ate on a plane this morning at about 11 o'clock. We're going to swivel from, um, so... Is Obviously, the camera on. People see me. Yeah, we see it. Uh, That's all right. We only yeah. put it on you That's when you're look, talking. Support local business. Support it. local business. Yeah, but in terms port of how pizza. we edit it, port pizza. It's only when is you're it good pizza. I'm not sure. Is it good? Yeah, it is. Do you want a piece? Hey? I would love a piece. Thank yeah. you. Hey, which is hungry boy. Yeah. So, Mr. Opposition Leader, uh, the question me. I want to ask you though <laughs> is: in the federal election, it seemed like COVID didn't really play a big role, and it seemed that once again, climate change was was really back on the agenda. The Greens did exceedingly well. I didn't predict it. I don't think many people predicted that how many seats I'd pick up. You know, someone who's been in your in your uh, life, you've been very uh, um, passionate about climate change, passionate about sustainability and the environment. How do you see that being played out as you as opposition leader now? Practical stuff. Yep. So I've just spent a day at a bit of a think tank forum in Sydney. Mentioned I was on the plane this morning, last time I ate. Pizza's quite good. Um, talking about centre-right ideology's response to conservation and climate change. I'm a passionate conservationist. I wanted to be the environment minister more than anything else. And this, the conversations that we had, led by David Cameron, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom... These conversations looked at how 
centre-right politicians and political parties who are often panned for not responding effectively to the big mm. environmental challenges facing us could actually respond, respond with market solutions, respond with practical outcomes. And I, that was my approach. I became environment minister in March 2018, and I said, the gesture, the virtue signaling, the activism, the poster waving. I'm, you know, the, the, womb, the people that wanted to save the wombats, you reckon they've been out planting trees? I know. You reckon they've yeah. been creating wombat habitat in areas that wombats are Well, they're probably, probably having an hour shower. Probably, yeah, yeah probably well, they're, they're water. sitting behind their, their <laughs> yeah. screens now. Yeah. We're not going to generalise. Some of them probably are doing good work. But it's all about practical. When I was minister, more trees in the ground, expanded national parks, Glenthorne National Park down south, more ways for people to sensitively access the environment. Um expanded range of workforce, banning single-use plastics, serious measures to impact practical change. This poster-waving, virtue-signaling activism, I've got no time for that. So two weeks ago, state budget was handed down on Thursday. On Tuesday, Labour move a motion, let's um, declare a climate Climate, emergency. I moved an amendment saying, if we're going to do that, let's back it with support for the environment department let's quarantine the environment department and the upcoming state budget from cuts tuesday but labor didn't support that but the motion got through anyway because labor got the numbers on tuesday south australia declares a climate emergency wednesday we announced we're cutting the home battery scheme a key climate mitigation or emissions mitigation platform of what we're all about Thursday the budget hands massive cuts to the environment department including the urban greening practical programs Tuesday was virtue signaling Wednesday and Thursday were massive cuts to practical programs that's the left typical the right of politics that I want to be part of will deliver practical outcomes for our environment. Does this That's hydrogen approach. plot? Anyway. Chill, chill, chill. Let let yeah. the man eat his last. Hopefully that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah. And we'll go into hydrogen shortly, but yeah. I want to have a moment where I'm talking um, so then you can eat your pizza, okay? Okay. That's okay. You, I, I want my mouth. Hopefully, I can make sure that you can even have two slices. But please, don't say oh, thank you again. Bit, Just bit keep greedy eating. there. Two slices. Oh, <laughs> dude, he hasn't eaten since this morning. You know, he's, I, he's, I a, feel he's that. fasting for mental superiority. Yeah, no, yeah. No, no, no. he likes to eat. Um, okay, so I had a guy on recently. His name is Ian uh, Plimmer or Plimer. and uh, he essentially is a geologist. He worked in the geology industry. Uh, when he was young, became a professor all around the world and then has rejoined the mining industry. He's in like his 70s mm. and like he's, he's phenomenal. And I, he's one of the head honchos in his positions now in mining. And he has like something like 12 books out and 150 research papers. Like he's very well researched and he's a geologist. And he comes from the perspective that all this climate emergency is a bit of a farce when you look at a geological timescale and that the global warming is actually um, not uh, not happening in the sense like the actual warming of the climate is not something that is to be alarmed about because it's a very 
it's happened before many times. And he says it's happened worse than this. We're actually in a really good time. And I asked, okay, what about like uh, the biodiversity and all these uh, animals and insects like going to extinction? And he was saying to me that uh, actually what you find in a higher carbon uh, planet, there's actually a lot more that are being created and invent not invented, but like there's more species and stuff actually being discovered than there is that are dropping off the face of the earth and dying. And one thing that he pointed to in terms of the science that is used to justify this, uh, the climate change and the global warming was um, that it's only on like a 150-year timescale and it doesn't take into consideration underwater volcanoes. And he says there's about, oh, saying like, was it 2,000 above water? You'd probably be able to fact check that maybe. But they're saying like 2,000 above water. And he said there's, there's upwards of 6,000 that we know about under the sea that are not taken into consideration of how they affect the carbon emissions into our society and the methane emissions oh, yeah. into our planet. Um, so with that kind of being said, based on what you know with your deep dive into the climate and whatnot, you know, what have, what have you seen is the real gig of what's going on? Like what's the truth to you of what climate change is and means? In the world, you got well done. By the way, you got a slice and a half. Slice and a half, and then (laughs) as as I'm eating this, I think pizza change. Pizza change. This is not the way to um, emulate Peter Malinowski's six pack. Sitting here munching pizza, (laughs) (laughs) given so how little I've eaten today, though it's probably not making a great difference. Um, Look, as Minister for Climate Change in this state for four years, I certainly formed the opinion that the climate is changing. Um, and you could argue the climate is always changing, and of course it is, um, in a in a natural sense. But look, I got to rely on the science that I'm presented with, and um, by and large, the consistent science at an international level, or the scientific thinking is that man-made, man made, um, um, human human generated emissions around. Um, energy and uh, and agriculture and and big source points like that transport are contributing to significantly contributing to um, warming of the earth and that um, that's that's where I have landed as as for the when I was the environment minister to to uh, desire to see action to see a transition to cleaner cleaner fuels, cleaner forms of energy production and um, ways to reduce greenhouse gases from agricultural activities, etc. Now, let's say for a moment we don't you don't take my view. Everyone should still jump on board the opportunities from climate change. Because our green transition, our move towards hydrogen our transition to renewables, green industries in South Australia is an incredible economic opportunity. 100% agree. So the economics outstrip the environmentals. Mm. Now, 
So I say to people who don't believe in climate change, that's not me, but I say to those people, grab hold of the economic opportunity regardless. Do you want cheaper power bills? Yes. Yeah. And interesting, because that's what I asked. I asked Ian this. I was like, Professor Ian, what about the economics? Essentially, I was like saying, you know, isn't it good to be off the grid with your solar homes and stuff like that? Isn't it good to just be sustainable? Um, And he said, look, when it comes to hydrogen, it takes something, it was either, the number was either 7 or 30. So imagine like building blocks. It takes like 7 or 30 um, units of energy to create one unit of energy from hydrogen. And he said, the only reason that is able to actually see the light of day with the current levels of technology we have is because it is subsidised and it is held afloat by the government. That was his his um, thoughts on, on it. His, his take on hydrogen was. And then this is a mix between him and a guy named Michael Scherberger or something like that. Anyway, he's running to be the governor of California currently. Very well researched. Has heaps of uh, like several books. I've out read some that. of his stuff. He's 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 pretty well balanced on things, um, or tries to be at least. And I think that's that's an important thing, right? Um, and he was saying that a lot of the solar panels, in terms of our waste management of them, we don't know how to recycle a lot of the materials in them, and then they end they're ending up in East Africa, and people are just picking through them and getting exposed to dangerous chemicals. And there may be some of that. That's always been the case with waste, though. We've got to get better at making sure that doesn't happen. Um, We don't have a lot of waste solar panels to date. There wouldn't be many solar panels that have reached the end of their life. It'll it'll start. It'll start soon. And do we have a way to solve that in Australia? I don't don't know if we do or not. Yeah, because that's... Um, But we should be looking for solutions. Um, Hydrogen, look, the great opportunity with hydrogen in South Australia is it isn't energy, it is certainly energy intensive to create, to produce. No doubt about that. But the great opportunity here is that we have all those renewables. And those renewables can feed into it. So we've got green hydrogen. But if they're producing, if it's creating, because he was also saying the energy it takes to create. Can I have a third piece? Yeah, of course, mate. Are you sure? We've got another pizza. I don't know. I'm not eating anything. Do you want some? We have another as well. Do you want margarita? Oh, I'll I'll have a piece of margarita. Owen, please. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you've got like a little waiter. Oh, yeah. Well, look, Owen's my cousin. Oh, Owen. he's sorry. He's not quite. So, Owen is my cousin. Um, yeah, my younger cousin, obviously. I couldn't tell. And uh, he works on the on the cameras. The production. Yeah, Does he's he the production it? guy. Or is he like a slave? Yeah. I don't know. Owen, are you a slave? Say the right thing, mate. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you're a slave. He's okay. worried about those wombats. <laughs> He's probably been trolling me while um, I've been here. He set up, he set up Joe Bloggs, 1984. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trolling me now. Wombat warrior. That wombat warrior. Oh, Classic. You know, my, uh, Hamish, my thoughts on, on climate change. You know, at the end of the day, for me, I don't really... The way I see that science has moved, when we've had... 
pivotal points and we'll change energy sources, right? It's always been it's always been inventions and economics that have driven the change. It hasn't been – this is the first time society – it's been a social – a big social thing to push something. That's mm. kind of my problem with it because if you leave it to the economists and you leave it to the inventors, we'll come up with things just like we have with every other thing. Like when we had the hole in the ozone layer from the chemicals in, in refrigerators and yep. microwaves, we sold it through technology. We go for pragmatic, you know, kind of CEO approach to this thing we're going to fix this issue in the next 25 years. What's that guy? What's that guy that said the top 100 things we can do to like make the planet a better place? And his name was like Luxon or something like that. He was oh, uh, Peterson talks about him and so does um, uh, Milo, uh, Milo. I don't know about that, but I just saw him directly. And he was essentially yeah. like, if we're going to impact the climate, the best thing we can do as a world is actually raise people out of poverty because it's people oh, using yeah, yeah. using feces, using wood, Killing, using all um, these cow, older cow poo and yeah, parts. getting feces. Yep, yep. Yeah, using one old real school. challenge is the loss of wild spaces from farming, intensive farming, and things like that. So, the more people who are lifted out of poverty, you're more likely to live in cities, consolidated footprints, um, things like that, rather than clearing of land and. Clearing a forest. Shellenberger talks about into this like as well. Coal and and this is one area well. I really do agree with. You know, there's an opportunity there, big opportunity. Educating women is the best way to do this because the best way to lift people out of poverty is to educate women. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What does Owen think of climate change? Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things going around at the moment. Um, but, I mean... I don't really know, to be honest. Because I'm really, uh, in terms of the innovation side of things, like I Fourth geek piece out. Of pizza. Dude, go ahead. <laughs> I geek out on this. Like I found this, um, but mine's more on like on a material and how we can create more circular economy sustainability. For example, like I don't think we should say, oh, uh, we need to get rid of all plastics and stuff. It's like, okay, plastic's a great material to use. How can we... For example, with something like a toothbrush, how can we get that? And instead of saying, oh, you need to change your habits of how you use things, say, no, let's actually improve the technology and say, how can we have this convenient disposable society but actually do the R&D to create materials that it works to be that way? Because trying to sell someone a less convenient lifestyle is just like, it's silly. Why would the majority of people move in that direction when it's counterproductive to human nature? We're looking for comfortability. We're looking for how to do things more convenient so then we can focus more of our time on things we want to do. You know, that's why the milkman is gone. Mm. Like the milkman. That's really sad, isn't it? I mean, it's a pretty cool thing, right? And it was so. Only because the milk's got. We had a milkman back in Scotland called Peppy. (laughs) Peppy. (laughs) Peppy. Peppy has the milk. Peppy. And he he had a son called Craig, I think. And um, that's a bit of a different name to Peppy. (laughs) He obviously felt bad about his name. Just called him his son a boring name. (laughs) What are you going to call your son, Craig? Pepe and Craig. Anyway, Pepe, when we moved from the village, because I grew up in a little village, but then we actually moved out into a farmhouse in the country. Mm. We were really good milk customers, so Pepe would drive there. It was a couple of K, but he'd come out and still deliver us milk. 
and what, a orange. few liters at a time, or yeah, like quite a few. We drank a lot of milk. Mm, that's good. And he on on a Monday he delivered fresh orange juice. Oh, that's great. That's anyway, so that's good. the story of Pepe. Yeah, shout out to they Pepe. still do that with water though. <laughs> Which is interesting. Yeah, they do do it with like, you know, box water and stuff like that. Shout out Pe- Green Hill Springs. Maybe Pepe does that now. Yeah, maybe he just does water. Or maybe he's dead. I don't know. <laughs> How old was Pepe? <laughs> he wasn't young, but he's not old either. And his kid was at school with me. He was the year above. Yeah. I should message my mom. Yeah. Snapchat. Do it. Snapchat. Mm. Yeah, not on get that streak, man. Mm. Mom's not on Snapchat. Look streak. Uh, his yeah. surname was Patterson, though. Peppy Pat. It's <laughs> 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 great. <laughs> that is too good. That is too good. Peppy Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> and Greg Patterson. Oh, that's it. Wallace and Gromit needs a new name. Peppy Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That's good. Yep. Okay. Um, well, I so found out about this aside. other cool thing. That's a good aside. I like that. Shout out to Peppy. Um, I saw this innovation in terms of creating things like concrete, which is they can have these uh, these trawlers that sweep the um, bottom of oceans and they collect oh, like yeah, yeah. all uh, shells and whatnot. Precious minerals and some of that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just like shells, yeah, and yeah. precious minerals and they can actually like take all that and then make it into like concretes and stuff like that, which I thought was pretty cool. And then there's like self-healing concretes, which would be really good for skyscrapers. There's also like the fungi that they can use to create things. There's hemp that they can create bricks and plastics. And There's a lot of alternatives to plastic now. Yeah. Which is good, I think. Yeah. Plastic shouldn't be seen as an evil thing, though. And I often say this. It is one of the great inventions of humankind. You know, one of our great achievements was the creation of plastic. If you think about it, mm. uh, wrapping food. Yeah. Plastic enabled food to be kept fresh in a way that... Yeah, like for, cling for, wrap. Yeah, but vacuum packing and Tupperware and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Plastic's not a bad thing, but disposed of poorly. Mm. It's a very bad thing. So I think 8 million tonnes of plastic ends up in the sea every year. Yeah, but isn't... I saw that... Did you see that Sea Spiracy on Netflix? Oh, I started to watch it, but then I sort of lost the will with it. Yeah, okay. Well, that was essentially all saying these Netflix that shows whether you're going to get a, you know, become a vegan to get a six pack, Peter, uh, or <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, is, he not, is, or is he a vegan? Is he a vegan? No, no. Oh, thank God. So Susan Close, the, the deputy premier, is. Oh, shout out to her. We don't these Port Adelaide. We're in we're in her electorate at the moment. Yeah, but. Um, no, I don't mind vegans. Um, people <laughs> want to be a vegan. They can be a vegan. I'm not, but. You know, whatever. But um, there's always another fad Netflix show, isn't there? That's Jump true. On board and everyone's messaged me. Have you seen what was the vegan one Cow called? Conspiracy? Cow, cow, cow conspiracy. Conspiracy. Well, they try to say that these What's athletes. The conspiracy. Yeah. I don't know. But this one, the yeah. main point that I got out of it was that it was saying that half of the actual plastic waste in the ocean is from the commercial fishing industry. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't make a big contribution to it. Yeah. So that's what they were saying. They were saying if we want to make a big kind of like leap forward and minimising it, you know, we need to regulate. I wouldn't be surprised if they're not a major contributor. I wouldn't necessarily believe everything about good old seaspiracy. How interesting thing, though... Plastic pollution in in Australia's along Australia's coastline is dropping quite dramatically. 
And Why? it's because of single-use plastic yeah. bans. It's because of people being more aware. It's because of beach cleanups and things yeah. like that. It's actually making, in the last um, decade or so, it's come down about 30%. Yeah. Have and you... Uh, oh, sorry. It's coming finish. down more. That's good. Have you seen those companies that has, have essentially um, reinvented home products like Zero Co? No. Dude, you should check it out. You'd what love do it. They do? It's essentially uh, getting rid of all the waste from your home products. So, for example, your soaps, your shampoos, like all that kind of thing. So you don't own any wrapping or anything. Yeah, it's, yeah. it gets rid of all of it. But it doesn't take away the convenience of having like liquid soaps and stuff yep. like that. And there's another one. What's it called? Zero Co. Zero Co. Should look at that. Yeah, I can send you. There's another one called like Blue Land. Yeah, okay. And that does Same a lot of links. like. Um, I don't mind those things. What? Are you shaking your head? No. Owen doesn't Don't like it. No, he, no. he hates blue land. No, no, no. I we, you. we were starting a business. You that, and Owen. Yeah, there's essentially well done, a, around solving. Get around it. Oh, dude, he's I a smart like I feel like I'm interviewing Owen now. Do it. He go would on, be very good. No. Let's go. What, are you interviewing? what questions do you have? We just need help Owen? getting up early in the morning. How old are you? <laughs> uh, I've just turned 20. 20? Yeah. Gee, 20 year olds look young these days. Yeah, well, I'm extra young, I suppose. Younger than me. What was I doing at 20? Down at Middleton. Sorry. Yeah. This man works, plays in the stock market for fun. Really? Yeah, yeah. Is it all going well for you? Uh, not at the moment. Uh, down a little bit. but some, uh, you lose some. What, you still, yeah. what do you think yeah, of Bitcoin, up. cryptocurrency? What? You're still up. No, I'm interviewing. I'm still up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what, do you think of, what do you think of crypto? Um, it's a tough question. I mean, at the moment, it's terrible. Um, but I think... When the world stables a little bit, so should we be buying it now? I think yeah. If you want to buy Get it now, crypto now. Yeah, I think Bitcoin's probably Bitcoin. It's trying twenty one thousand or something. You yeah. used to have it like eighty five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was eighty five. But will it ever come back? Well, I don't know. They, yeah. reckon, they reckon a million by twenty twenty five. So if you buy now, you could be sitting on a fortune. Yeah. Bloody hell! Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quitting politics. Huh. Well, go and buy well, investment, invest, investment fund. I'm not saying invest all your money in it. Oh, I'm saying okay. I got one dollar, one million. No. I'm um, saying definitely. I've got another question. Um, where did you go to school? That's a very Adelaide question. It's People ask me, and I'm like, Nah, Scotland. Sorry. Where did you go to school? I uh, went to school uh, in Victor Harbour for most of my life. Which uh, which Victor Harbour investigator? Um, in Canada and College. That's what I meant. Yeah, I, um, went there. I went to a paddock there when I was the environment minister and planted really? a train, so a bee hotel. Yeah. Yep. A bee hotel. Yeah, a bee a hotel, hotel for little bees. I don't think they work. Um, and so then, you went from Victor? Yeah, I went from Victor. Sorry, originally I was in Adelaide. I went to um, St. Andrews and then I moved down to Victor. No, St. Andrews. Did you, do you still live in Victor? No, I don't still live in Victor. Why did you leave Victor? Um, well, family just moved around, I guess. Um, and now, well, I finished my last three years at St. Peter's College. Oh, that's a bit posh. Yes, it is a bit, mm. <laughs> bit posh. One of us. Yeah. I um, <laughs> I didn't go there. Yeah. I went to public school. Yeah. You know, and look, I always say to public school kids, don't let it hold you back. Yeah. Well, I think there's a bit, some people think you've got to go to a private school to get ahead. Not at all. I'm the <laughs> opposition leader. I went to public school. Yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't care about, I mean, school is an interesting conversation, but we really don't care. Like I got friends from, some friends dropped out of school. Some friends, you know, have two degrees. Like, you know, if someone's intelligent enough to hold good conversations. So there's a real place for public. Well, there's a critical place for public education, but we we've got a pretty good system overall. Yeah, definitely. I like I know a few people from Adelaide High. So, 
Okay, um, so question. As like a... I'm loving interviewing right, on. Hey, it's great, isn't it? He's, yeah. ha- he's had enough of it. As what are you doing now? Are you studying? Uh, yeah, I'm studying a Bachelor of Commerce at Adelaide Uni. Okay. Um, and majoring in marketing and accounting. Nice. Bright yes. future. Oh, let's hope so. <laughs> anyway, I'm done with it. I don't lose my money on the stocks, but yeah. Nah, nah you'll be right. You're good at it. Um, okay, so as a, like coming across here, so you're like an immigrant, yeah, that's technical. Yeah, like, Scottish boy. Yep. Um, Hello, Australia. What do you I'm, think I'm about it? <laughs> that's what I was like, day one. Hello. The Batman origin I tried story. to say good day, but yeah, it didn't yeah. sound right, so I never did it again. But what do you think about, or what do you think the solutions are? Because our audio engineer that is not here this evening is Bjorn Gru, and he is a poet, journalist, and like an activist. And right now he's in Darwin uh, as a guest speaker at a school uh, to speak on his journey of a refugee because he came across here as at the age of five as an unaccompanied minor and essentially speaks on uh, the identity crisis going on in the African community that has come across. So have you... Has that come on your table? Do you know much about... Don't know anything about that at all, no. So you haven't met Bjorn yet? No. You've got to meet Bjorn. Yeah, you got got so where's he from? So he's from South Sudan. Oh, I've been... Oh, I've got a bit of story about South Sudan. I've not been there, but I've been right to the border. Oh, really? In Uganda. So Uganda's south of South Sudan, and I've looked over into it. One of the most isolated parts of the world. 2009, I went there when I travelled through Africa. Wow. There you go. Pretty cool. It was a fresh new country. Still a lot of civil war around. Yeah. Why were you Critical there? Trip. Went there on a sort of volunteer project to to work in a building building initiative over there. It's good. I've been over there twice. Haven't been since two thousand nine. But yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what's his name? Bjor. Bjor. How do you spell like that? Like Dior, but B with a B. Oh, that's handy. Yeah. That's <laughs> a good way of saying it as yeah. well. Yeah. So he's awesome. And he's coming out with his second book of poetry called Divinity. And he is such a good way of writing. You'd dig it. Um, but essentially, what he has said is that there's an identity crisis going on in the African community where you have, like, your parents that are first generation. Yep. And they want their children to hold the exact same values and traditions of how to go about life. And then the second generation is like assimilating to the Australian culture and is living the way that Austra- yeah, they, yeah. they want to be like Australian. Um, and there's this conflict and also there's a lot of single families that have come across, like yeah. single parent families that have come across. Kids are left to their own devices. Like stability. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's led to like at the worst, the gang-orientated yeah, okay. violence and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I don't like know that. much about it at all. Yeah, and it's said to be like a, it's a, it's an interesting complex issue because there's a lot of politics between countries, is what I've been told. Yeah, okay. of African countries, yeah, but they're all be, over that here. That would be right yeah. in the same position at yeah, the same time, where they wouldn't cross paths and the on the African continent. Doesn't surprise me that because that's one of the the challenges of multiculturalism and trying to provide people with the support to appropriately you know te- build new lives here There's a lot of trauma as well you're not coming here from south sudan if life's been really great over there yeah exactly yeah so it's an interesting like really complex just human issue yeah. to deal with like you know as a country or even as a state of like how do we go about like having effective um multiculturalism and assimilation yeah and 
empowering people that aren't from places that have facilitated that empowerment. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So it's wild stuff. But where else have you travelled around the world? I've not travelled hugely. I've been to parts of the States because my brother lives over there. Um, I've been to... Where have I been to? Not travelled through Europe at all. Um because when I go back to Europe, I just go to Scotland. You yeah. Know, go and see family, go and take those snap streaks in person. Um, where have I been? Been to Africa, been to South Africa, been to Zimbabwe, been to Uganda, into the border of South Sudan, been to. Yeah, I haven't travelled much. What was was Zimbabwe like? Zimbabwe was a really sad country because Zimbabwe has been quite a developed country, but it's slipped back because of serious corruption under Mugabe. So it was a very, it was a country that had, when it was um, looked, I won't go as far as saying. I've been to Zimbabwe. Colonized because it wasn't colonized in the same way as as some countries, but it was really it had a lot of money there. Very fertile country. Um, the UK invested in it and had a big stake there. When they pulled out, corruption set in some years later and um, it it all fell apart on them. And so that's a country that has been up here, but it's slipped. Yeah. And and you could see that old, like it once had modern infrastructure, but it's fallen back. I saw big sports stadiums that had fallen into disrepair there. That was a sad place. COVID's devastated Zimbabwe. Yeah, well. okay. Yeah. Yeah. They had to there was there was a, it was world news about four or five months back about them reintroducing lockdown, something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's rough. Yeah, mm. I mean, speaking of that kind of stuff, um all the supply chains for like solving world hunger and stuff is supposed to be gone back like twenty, thirty years of improvement. That doesn't surprise me. Those will be the un unseen impacts and of course some western countries will feel the need to cut back on their humanitarian aid programs as they get their own economies back in order and that's that's going to be problematic as well yeah and then we also got like growing tension with china so it's going to like big issues here the issue with our country yeah yeah china the our relationship with china is critical and um no doubt problematic now new labor government appear to be reaching out trying to repair that relationship well let's hope so because that's a real challenge yeah i mean what is kind of like the line that you think should be taken in that in terms of not being stepped over by another country or becoming like puppeted by another country you don't want that you don't want that you've got to fight for your sovereignty and secure that of course but they're major trading partner as well so i mentioned the wine industry way back at the beginning of this conversation Mm. and they are hurting real bad because china's brought in these um, major restrictions on the import of australian wine they some wineries it was a massive part not all wineries, but some wineries are a massive part of their Pinfolds. sales. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they've just been decimated, you know. Yeah. Um, so, look, the, the relationship with China is tricky. You've got to make, you, you've got, these relationships have to be two ways. They've got to be respectful. You can't have cyber attacks and, and undermining of, of Australia's sovereignty. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we've, um, we've, got to have a productive relationship there 
Do you have to deal with much defence orientated no, stuff? Not at all. States got no foreign affairs or defence matters at all. Okay. So, which is probably quite a relief. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty intense like part Huge. of like it's part a significant part of federal politics. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason why like federal governments were created in the beginning, right? Is to say, okay, we're all here. We don't want to be invaded by another persons keep you safe let's keep us safe yeah it's like the fundamental reason of any empire right yeah. i'm pretty uh safety. i'm pretty uneasy about that particular issue with the new government uh, i think that's a uh not a not a great area we're like we're not in a good time in australia like from from how china's been behaving and then ukraine and stuff like that like it's definitely a precarious time in australia's history at the moment from a national defense oh, standpoint. Yes. Uh, but it's an, a precar- precarious time in global history. Yeah. I think there's more uncertainty than we've we've had incredibly peaceful times for 40, 50 years really. Well, certainly since the end of the Cold, Cold War. War. Yeah. Well, it's been about 80 years since the World War 2. World War 2, but then we had conflicts in Korea, Vietnam and the Cold War. And Cold War, I suspect, you know, the Cold War was coming to an end in my very early childhood, but that was a very scary time in mm. terms of um you know, missiles, be, missiles in Russia, missiles in the US, massively simplifying this, obviously, but uh, and the possibility of mutual destruction, you know, that was presumably a very scary time. Vietnam. Supposedly, we're not in that position anymore as a world. Supposedly, with hypersonic missiles, they're so fast and they can change direction in the air that it's not mutually assured destruction because they can get there within two minutes. So you need to be able to like sort everything out within two minutes and fire back. So it's like, I it's no longer like three or four hours. Yo, I was listening to a podcast about it and I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> like be true then. <laughs> it was a fucking, yeah. no, it was with yeah. this guy. Check. I mean, look, it was with this guy that is like a, he's like an ex CIA or one of those American Covert people, so huh? His name's Mike. Mike something. He was on Joe Rogan. Anyway, it was good, but uh, yeah, that's pretty wild stuff. That if that's the case, that we don't have mutually assured destruction. Like, what does it mean in terms of geopolitically holding on to each other? Yeah, the time. How you do? How you tracking for time? By the way, I'm probably at the upper limit of my time. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Quickly, just before you go. Yep. Nuclear power. You fan? Not a fan. I look. I am very interested in seeing where that will go in the future. The idea of building a nuclear power station here is completely unfeasible, infeasible because of the so at a at a at the scale of what you see in the in the UK and and US parts of Europe, etc. They're huge. They're massively expensive. Um, it's just not going to happen here. But How much does it cost? Just out of billions and billions, billions yeah. and, and billions. a lot of time as well. And, and twenty-five years. The yeah. UK. Well, look, it's decades potentially. The UK's commission commissioned a new one a while ago, and it's just costing more and more and more and taking a long, long time. Well, I do think there's a place for a discussion about the future of nuclear energy at a at a small scale level and i don't know enough about this but it's something i think um we should be willing to have conversations about jay weatherall when he was premier commissioned a a nuclear fuel fuel cycle royal commission uh it it looked at certain opportunities suggested the time just wasn't right for things Mm. however um 
advancing technologies might create opportunities for small-scale nuclear reactors. But yeah, the well, security I issues... Company, I saw a company called Okta. I think it's Okta. And um, it's from Japan, I'm pretty sure. And they've created small nuclear reactors that are great for, like, either small little villages or n- military Industri- bases and industries and, like and things like that. Look, I think there's an opportunity to explore that where, if and when the technology is there. Many countries will not be able to reach net zero targets without some form of nuclear energy yeah. production because of the um, they don't have the geographical advantages that Australia has mm. in terms of wind and solar and open space. So there may have to be other solutions there. Yeah, but fair. that work is still to be done. Okay, is there anything else you want to say before we... I don't think so. I think we've had an epic uh, conversation which has gone well over two hours. So two and a half hours. Two two and hours and ten minutes. Okay, two hours and ten minutes. So I'm sure... (laughs) Which hasn't got a clock. (laughs) You've got a little bit of content there. Beautiful. Hopefully nothing will get me in too much trouble. Uh, Uh, Just those wombat people. Maybe uh, maybe edit out some of my passion there. But... um, like, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to have a chat. Good to good to catch up again, Owen. Good to meet you. Good yeah, luck. Very good to meet you. Good good luck with the stock market, etc. <laughs> Take over Victor Harbour one day, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'll see you all soon. Done. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. And.